we have to give a future, we need to give hope, and we have to encourage the Ukrainian population ima to imagine their future. That this, it is our duty and it is our, our interest to do this, because if they lose hope, they're no longer going to fight. If, they, if they're no longer going to fight, the geopolitical consequences will be major and they are not in our interest. So that's, there's a real spin behind this. I, I, I want you to understand something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this one more time. We Stop right there. This was not caught off, you know, like on a hot mic. This wasn't backdoor discussions that someone secretly recorded. And they didn't just say this. This was a short that the WEF posted on their YouTube page. And let's appreciate what exactly is being said in here. We have to give a future. We need to give hope. And we have to encourage the Ukrainian population ima to imagine their future. That this, it is our duty and it is our, our interest. To oh, do. No question, it's in your interest to encourage them to keep fighting a war that many predicted they could never win in the first place. It's, your, it's in your interest to not push diplomacy uh, and it's in your interest to lead to the slaughter a generation of Ukrainian men and women. This because if they lose hope, they lose they're hope. no longer going to fight. Oh my goodness, if they realize that they should negotiate a peaceful resolution, well then where the hell are we going to launder our money for the next five years? If they realize that, uh, you know, okay, cut your losses, maybe. Then they might actually stop fighting. We might actually have peace. That's not good for the military industrial complex. That's not good for our interests. What are our interests? Using the Ukrainian people as proxies for this war against Russia. We'll fight to the last Ukrainian, says every member of that military industrial complex. But what he says at the end. If, they, if they're no longer going to fight, the geopolitical consequences will be major yeah. oh, and they are not in our interest. Oh, that's so nice, that's nice. If the Ukrainians won't fight, the geopolitical consequences will not be in our interest, says this man in his Bundeswehr. Avec son accent formidable français. Oh, ce sont des conséquences géopolitiques majeures, putain. That's, there's a real spin behind oh, it. Oh, there's a spin behind it. It's a spin. How can you justify slaughtering people? How can you convince them to march off to the slaughter? Well, uh, some, of, some of them apparently are not doing it all that willingly, hence the conscription of any fighting-aged male um, in Ukraine. Okay, well, that, that really, it's not really on topic for today. I was going to start with Joe Biden calling, you know, everyone who disagrees with him extreme MAGA Republican. That might have been a, a, a more appropriate intro video, but it was four seconds long. Um, and uh, it wasn't long enough to, to do the standard intro while everyone trickles in. If you don't know who we are um, talking with today, um, you, you're, you're going you're gonna to know. We're going to do, do a whole series because this has to be memorialized. It has to be memorialized in real time, documented, so that if and when the proverbial uh, iron fist comes down and, and tries to memory hole things, people have seen it and people have uh, understood what's happening. Okay, standard disclaimers, or y'all know the, how this works. Viva Fry, former Montreal litigator turned current Florida rumbler. We're going to start on YouTube, Viva Fry, Rumble, Viva Fry, and vivabarnslaw.locals.com. I should have made sure that we are live everywhere. And we are. Live on Rumble, perfect. And we are live on vivabarnslaw.locals.com, perfect. Let me just play it and make sure. Good. And, excuse me, we're going to end on YouTube 20, 30 minutes in. 
move over to Rumble exclusively. Uh, I'll post the entire interview to, to YouTube later on. It's not a question of, uh, you know, weighing our words. I don't give a crap about that anymore. Uh, it's a question of favoring the platforms that actually support and promote free speech like Rumble. Okay, and if anyone, the link to Rumble is up there. If anybody wants to come on over right now to vivabarnslaw.locals.com where we have a wonderful community of above average members Come on over, vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Okay, and now for those of you who don't know, the, um, let me refresh here and just make sure we're good. Good. Alfredo Luna, if you don't know who he is, Alpha Warrior. I was going to say Alpha Male, but Alpha Warrior, he's got his own podcast now. Uh, he's got his own Rumble channel. He's on another platform, which we're going to talk about at length, but I will let, uh, I will let him give us the 30,000 foot overview before we dive into childhood, upbringing, military service, and being the object and the victim of a weaponized persecution. Alpha, are you ready? <laughs> Sir, at the risk of asking the obvious question, how goes the battle? And while you answer that, I'm going to go to locals and see if our audio levels are matching. 30,000 foot overview. Who are you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, I'll start off with my greatest accomplishment. Uh, I'm a dad. Uh, so that, that, that takes the lead. After that, uh, very interested in getting to the upbringing. I think some people will be surprised, especially uh, some good friends that are watching today. Uh, honored to be here, so thanks for having me. Thanks for the the, ch the chat, the audience willing to take time to hear my story. Your, your guys' time is valuable, and, and you're going to spend it with us, so I appreciate well, that. It's amazing, because I get I get a, a lot of DMs, and I get a lot of people saying, you got to have X, you know, people on, and like, I have trouble keeping up myself with everything that's going on, and so I stumbled across it, go to your, I went to your, your Twitter feed, and then it was, it was bang, and then I DM, and you responded, you know, very quickly, so... That's how it just happens, and people have to be patient. The, the lightning strikes, and then, you know, life is created. Um, okay, so for, for, what's, your, what's your, your real name is? Full name is Alfredo Luna Jr. Now, let's see. This. Uh, if there's a junior, there's a senior, senior Alfredo. So, <laughs> I mean, you're from, born and raised in America. Where are you from? Yeah, born and raised in Southern California. Only time I've ever left the country is uh, just to go to war. Then came back right here to beautiful U.S. of A. That's okay. We're, we're going to, we're going to get there. Um, what, what did your parents do or what do they do? Uh, my mom, she's worked for special education kids uh, as an assistant teacher for over 35 years. Uh, she ended up having a stroke, uh, because of this story back in November of 2021. So she has since retired. Uh, my dad, uh, is independent. He contracts, does all kinds of work, electrical work, landscaping work, all that. Just, just a normal mom and dad. And m military family. No, no, I was uh, I was the first one. There's a cousin um, that went into the Marine Corps, uh, a cousin I looked up to. So if anything, that's probably where I knew I was going to go into the military. But I think the influence probably came from him as uh, to which branch I chose. Now, you said Southern California. Now, I only know that from a song because <laughs> apparently it never rains in Southern California. But a bing, but a boom. May I ask the indiscreet question as to how old you are? I am 44 years old. Shut the front door. When's your birthday? 99, September 9th, 1979. September. So I'm older than you by, hold on. You're going to turn 45 in September. Yeah, I, I got, I got, I got five months on you. Um, 44, man. Okay. Uh, I won't wait, spend too much time on it, but childhood, how many siblings, normal childhood? Uh, were you a troublemaking kid? No, no, actually I was a, a, a nerd jock <laughs> or undercover nerd, you know, cause I played sports, but I had very strict parents. Uh, both, both my parents came from, you know, very, very poor backgrounds. So it was just me and my little brother, six year difference. Um, they just wanted to make sure that we were set up for success. So yeah, a, a B in my house was equivalent to an F. That That's the way my dad saw things. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I tested that one time and I learned the hard way. So, you know, very strict upbringing. 
Uh, parents were very into the church. We were raised not just Catholic, as my mom says. We were raised Roman Catholic. That, that's that's the way we our household was. And if if I got in trouble, it was go read the Bible, and it better be better not be the story of Noah again. Can you um for for a, I will say a little Jew boy? Can you explain what that means? Not just Catholic, but Roman Catholic. Is Roman Catholic a particularly strict um, variant of Christianity? I, I, I mean, it's what part of Catholic is not strict? Uh, it's 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 more of the you know a lot of the old school cultural stuff is is really enforced. You know, it's the you know the traditional cathedral style churches. You know, you're going to go through all the sacraments when you're supposed to go through them. Uh, that I mean, my understanding of it, I didn't get into it as much as my parents did. Now, have you asked your parents what they think of Lil Nas's next uh, cover album? <laughs> okay, <laughs> for, forget that. I was we, we were talking about that yesterday on The Unusual Suspects, uh, Lil Nas um, likening himself to Jesus. Um, okay, so you, you say a closet, well, not a closet nerd, but an undercover nerd, uh, athletes. Are you, are, you, are you over six feet as well? No, no, no. I'm right at the threshold. Okay, so you're st still a monster as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so, uh, athlete as a kid growing up, I mean, how, how do, I guess the question is always, how do you get into the military? When do you make that decision to go train and then ultimately to go serve? You know, as far as the athlete part, you know, when I first got into football, it was tackle football, Pop Warner football, you know, this is back in the 80s. I had no business being in there that first season. I mean, my mom was the one that I had the neck roll, the arm pads. Like, I looked like the Michelin guy out there on the field and once the team realized like this kid just doesn't know it has no athletic capability they would just run my way and, and this is back when if you paid you played so you know i hated football that first year and when the season came to an end and, and i share this story because I, I think it'll make sense where a lot of my character came from later on in life my dad takes me we go home i'm getting ready to put my gear away and he's like no we go to the side of the house and he says, put, put your helmet back on, put your shoulder pads back on. And I'm like, remember, I'm like eight years old, maybe nine by this point. And he says, come and hit me. You know, big grown man, my father. And, you know, so I just kind of run and he's like, no, hit me. And he's pushing me back. And he does this a couple of times. So now, you know, I'm, I got tears in my eyes. I'm like, we just got embarrassed. Now I'm going through this. And he just, he, he just keeps re hit me, hit me, hit me. And finally, I just get so much anger and juice in me that I'm just like, I'm going to leave it all out here on the side of the house. And I bury my helmet right into my dad's uh, groin stomach area. And he falls down on the ground and he's gasping for air. And now I'm like, I'm about to get the worst whooping of my life. And he kind of sits up and he says, if you can knock me down, there's not one kid out there that you can knock down. And he just walks inside. And the following year, I went back into football and was most valuable player every year until I graduated high school. And so that that confidence was instilled by my father. But that being said, the strongest one in my family was my mom. Uh, you, you have to elaborate on that. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? My, my mom, she, you know, you would say the traditional mom, she took care of us. She raised us. Um, but she also worked, you know, I remember prior to going to, you know, preschool and kindergarten, you know, she would clean apartments in the apartment complex that we lived in and we'd be right there. She have eighties music on. It's the reason I like eighties music. If everybody's wondering, and she's cleaning walls and cleaning, you know, sliders. And I just watched her work and then we'd go home. She'd get everything ready for my father, you know, he, you know, put his boots out and 
that just never changed. My mom was working from before I woke up until I went to sleep. She was just always working. And then unfortunately, you know, later on in life, a year after I graduated, you know, there would be a divorce and my mom never remarried. She said, like I said, you know, Roman Catholic, she said, well, I'm married to God. And, you know, she, she continued that her, her entire life. And it, it just, anything that was just difficult, she just never showed it, you know, from, you know, my grandma passing away, she's just, the woman's strength is just, it's immeasurable. You said a year after high school? Yeah. High school in America is grade nine? Uh, uh, ninth to 12th. All right. And uh, so this is a year after you're out of high school. So a year yeah, after a grade year. 12. So you, 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 you are, you're six years older than your younger brother. Yes. So your younger brother's still in the house living through a, a split up. Is it, I mean, is it nasty? Is it, is it relatively amicable as far as divorces go? Um, you know, they did a good job of kind of shielding us from it. Um, you know, hindsight, I, I think it was probably a lot worse than we probably saw, but with the, we didn't really show a lot in front of us. I mean, the initial night that, you know, it was announced, you know, my mom told us about it. That was a pretty emotional night. But from that point on, you know, there was not a, a whole lot that, that they really shared until it was over. I've got people in the chat might get angry that I have to ask this because I need to know that. So they sit, I, do they sit you down together or does your mother sit you down alone with your brother and say, and give you the news? No, uh, I was told separate. Uh, I don't actually, I don't know how they told my little brother, but my mom's the one that told me. That's, I mean, that's, Jay, that's, she actually put, she put my dad on the spot. She's like, your father got something to tell you. And he was just like, my mom's name is Felicita, so we call her, he, everybody calls her Flea. And he's like, Flea, Flea. And she's like, no, either you tell your son or I will. And so then that's that's how I got the news. That's interesting. Okay. Um, and so you're, you're older, probably easier to deal with this, whether or not you retroactive, retrospectively understood signs that you didn't put together until it happens. Um, after So you graduate from high school. And now for someone who's never served, how does this work? Do you, do you apply to the military? Do you go to university and get into it afterwards? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you go about that, that thing? So, you know, like I said, my, my parents forced me to do really good in school. And I didn't want to go to college. <laughs> I was like, now, you know, I'm on my own. I did what they want to do. I want to do life the way I want. I don't want to go to these four universities. I know everything, right? I'm 17 and a half years old. Um, I want to work and go to junior college. And, and so I did, um, met, it was still dating a girl through high school. So that had some influence there too. Wasn't, wasn't the, the brightest outside of the books, I guess, with that decision. And I wanted to join the military and <laughs> man, this, this is really going to take the alpha title from me, but I'll get it back later. She's like, if you, if you join the Marines, I'm breaking up with you. And I was like, man, I really, you know, I really like this girl. And so I put it off. And we dated longer, ended up having, you know, my first two little girls uh, in 2000, 2001, and 9-11 happens. And I'm, I'm actually working as a construction company doing electric. Let me just, let me pause you there. I'm sorry, you had two kids by the time you're 21 years old. Yep, back to back. Are you, are, not that I, well, you're Roman Catholic. Are you married to this girl or are these out of wedlock children? At the moment, they're out of wedlock. <laughs> All right. Um, holy cow. I mean, that, that's wildly young for, for most people to have kids. You have two kids. I'll ask accidentally, or was it a plan? Uh, it was accident surprise. I mean, wasn't being too careful. So wasn't dumb. Knew it was running the risk, but it wasn't planned. Okay. Two kids. How, how far apart? One year, Shut uh, up. one, one born February 10th and the other one born May 2nd, February 10th. 
May 2nd, February, March, April, May. Dude, they say you're not supposed to engage in intercourse for six weeks after the... Okay. Never mind. I'm not, I'm not getting that far into it. So you have two kids by the time you're, you're 21. Then 9-11 happens. Yep. Okay. Now I, I can anticipate where this is going, but please tell us. Yeah. Um, I'm working a construction job with my dad and my uncle. Uh, it's remodeling some apartment complexes. And I'm working on the electrical work. And on the patio is this old couple, and they're watching TV. And obviously, it's early in the morning here on the West Coast. And the news pops on because the first tower got hit. Um, so I just kind of stop and I'm just looking, you know, at their TV with them. And they know, I mean, they didn't mind and watch the second thing happen. And then after that, it's, you know, everybody kind of knows the news of how it develops. So we go sit, sit down, have lunch with all the workers. And I, I tell my dad, hey, I'm, I'm going to the recruiting office tomorrow. And he was adamantly against it and uh, went the next day. They were closed, surprisingly. And so then I went the, the day after that. They were open. Uh, I enlisted, uh, took the test. They, you know, to summarize this process, they were trying to push me to get into JAG because I scored really, really, really high in the ASVAB. JAG is like, what? JAG is what? Judge, judge Advocate General. Okay. And I, mean, I, I know there was like, a television show called JAG, but I never watched it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a good one too. And um, and I said, no, I, I don't. So they were, they were pushing it, pushing it. And I said, listen, I want boots on the ground. I want to go over there. And, you know, slay bodies, you know, do the Marine Corps thing of what they did to our country. And so ended up joining uh, the infantry unit, went to boot camp. And then in February, on Valentine's Day of 2003, we landed in Kuwait and we're in Kuwait uh, just before the war started. Um, well, now you're you're I don't know if she's your wife at the time now, but at least the mother of your two kids, girlfriend who didn't want you joining beforehand, I presume wants you joining even less after 9-11. Yeah, she was not happy with the decision, but uh, this is when I realized how much I love my country and how much of a patriot I am and stood my ground and said, well, we're doing this together or I'm doing it on my own. How old and are your kids at this time? They're, they're, they're two and three years old or one and two? Two and three. Two and three. Dude, so you, you, you have, I, it's unfathomable, not unfathomable, like I can, I can sort of empathize and put myself in your shoes, but it's probably unfathomable to most. Two young kids... 9-11 and you say i'm signing up i'm going to go into harm's way i'm going to i'm going to not i'm going to leave my family and go fight for what i think is right at this time and you leave your two young children and join the united states marine corps i joined and i remember on the it would have been the 13th february 13th you know before we flew out um i remember going into the room because we all lived in one little room and looking at my two little girls that were sleeping on the bed and she's like, you want to wake them up to say goodbye? And I had already said goodbye before they before they went to sleep. And I said, no, I don't want to wake them up. You know, they're just going to cry. And I just, I, I, that was the image I burned in my head. And that was the image I kept with me the entire time I was out there. Uh, what What's it like leaving? Is she your wife or girlfriend at the time? But like, at what's that time, the... now we're married. Okay. Oh, you're, you're still, you're with her now. Yes, we're together. So we stay together. Holy oh, no, crap! No, we're, not, we're not together anymore. <laughs> oh, not together. Oh, darn. It. Okay. Well, I was going to say no. it had a happy ending, but I guess it had a happy middle. And now it's yeah. Um, it... Have you seen the movie Interstellar? I have. Okay. I mean, like, th th I've, I've never, I, I don't have these experiences. But in as much as you know, a, a scene of a movie makes you feel it. The scene when Matthew McConaughey's going off and the daughter says, "Like, I don't want to leave you angry like this," and then she chases him down as he's driving off. I mean. It's it, it makes you feel feelings. I mean, it's uh, and I can only imagine that's to some extent what it's like, but exponentially like on steroids for the person going through it. You and you're off and you're gone. And how long? Like, how, what's this whole process like? You, you get 
What is it like? Where do you go? What do they do with you? When do you come back? Yeah, we we, we flew from March Air Force Base, uh, which is in Moreno Valley, still Southern California. Uh, we did a layover in Maine. And then from Maine, we landed in Frankfurt, Germany. And then from Frankfurt, Germany, we landed in Kuwait. And so when you're flying over the Middle East for the first time, especially at night, I mean, everything's dark. You can just see, you know, a little bit of the, I mean, as high as you are, you can still see some of the dust trails from vehicles that are driving. But we land in Kuwait, and this is where you realize, like, this is real. Now, the war hasn't started yet, you know, because that starts about a month later. But we land in Kuwait, and it's just like, everybody's like, get off, get off, get off. You're like, you're dismounting the plane. It's like the movies. There's all, a line of black SUVs. You go to each one. You give information. You go to the next one. They're doing an eye scan. You go to the next one. Um, you're getting, uh, I think they gave us an ID or took our IDs, one of the two. And then you move into trucks and then, you know, head on heading off to whatever, you know, camp that they sent us to and then it's just it's a whole lot of training and downtime while you're in kuwait you're there you're not yet fully trained you're there for the training well we're, we're trained uh, very very good training but now you're doing specific training to what you're most likely going to encounter in in this kind of geographical area okay amazing how, how long does that training last and what do you experience when you're out there uh, well, we were we trained until March 17th, uh, I want to say about a day and a half before the rest of the world knew we fig- we got the news that we're going to be crossing the LOD. Um, and at that point, it's it's this comms check, it's weapons check, you know, it's health check. It's making sure everybody is at 110 percent ready to ready to go in battle, checking all the vehicles. Um, so I was lucky, you know, we're we're infantry scouts, um, part of a reconnaissance bata- uh, reconnaissance battalion. And. It's LAVs. So all the other grunts usually give me a hard time about this because we get taxied around while the other regular grunts have to have to march. So I always kind of get a little grief for that. But I just say they're jealous. It's OK. You'll survive. And we went and you're for those that don't know the LAV, it's like the Army's Bradley, except we have wheels instead of tracks and it's light armored instead of the better LAV, LAV is light armored vehicle. Yeah, light armored vehicle. So it has a 25 millimeter bush cannon on it. It's a, it's a, it's a beast of a vehicle. Wow. Uh, and so you're out there in the thick of it for, for how long? We crossed on March 18th and I was there until August the 18th of 2003. So March, 2001. Uh, yeah, March 2000. Oh, I'm sorry. March, 2003 okay. to August 18th of 2003. Uh, was that your, do they call that's, they call that a tour, right? Or, or, um, is that, is that like one sequence well, of service? So now they'll call them, so eventually they turn into deployments, but in the beginning of the war, it was really, this was new for us. So most of us, I actually think almost all of us, this was the first like combat deployment. Cause I don't think there was very many older guys that were there from the first desert storm, but we were told, Hey, once you Marines get to Baghdad, we're going to get you guys home. So you tell a bunch of Marines that that's the ticket to get home. A lot of motivation. Well, we ended up getting to Baghdad a lot faster than the campaign anticipated. So then it was like, well, no, we got to keep you guys around. And, you know, went. So now once the war, I want to say once it got to OIF three, the third phase is when it starts to turn into regular deployments. You'll get Marines that go out there for six months. think the Army does a year. And now you start having this like, you know, consistent like time pattern but in the beginning you don't know like you can be there six months nine months a a year 
until we establish control, you're not, you're not going home. And how many deployments did you do? That was it. That was the only combat deployment that I did. And so you're back in, you're back home, August, 2003, and you don't, you, you don't deploy for military again at any point. No, no, I don't deploy any. So what, because I had my two little girls at the time, they didn't allow me to go active duty. So they put me part of the reserve battalion. So I was part of fourth light armored reconnaissance battalion in Camp Pendleton. So the first what, two thirds of my career was like active duty because of combat. But once that was done, then it went back to the reserve role where you go, you know, once a month and then, the, you know, two weeks training throughout the year. Okay, now we're now we're gonna we've got the uh, we've got well I got some more questions about service and we're gonna fill in that the missing period until you get raided by the FBI over a tweet or over some tweets. Everybody, uh, get your butts on over to Rumble. Link is there. The link is in the pinned comment, and uh, we're gonna continue this there. But this will all be replayed on YouTube tomorrow. Uh, so doesn't change anything on our end. Alpha, give me two seconds, and we're gonna end on YouTube now. Now, I won't harp on this for too long, but it's always been something that I find fascinating. You, you get back from war, August 2003. What is it like reintegrating or integrating, or is it even possible, into civilian life when you get back? Like, what do you do? What's the first day like? What's, what's the, uh, the, the healing process like? And is there ever a full healing in terms of what you came from versus trying to get back to citizen life? Well, I, I figured you're going to find this part humorous. So I got to come home a month earlier than the rest of my company. Uh, and the reason they sent me home on August the 18th was because I had a baby that was due August the 20th. So they actually, I got to fly home earlier. So my process was a little bit different than a lot of the other Marines in my company. Uh, I get sent back to Kuwait. So I get to fly on the C-130 with the guys into Kuwait. I get to Kuwait, start doing... Um, a deprocessing process, which is just making sure that everybody knows where you're going, everything's squared away. But right before um, I go to get on the plane, you know, to start the process home, I'm in this camp where you got the Marines coming in and the Marines going, you know, home or, or, or wherever else they're being stationed at. And it's just like the movies. As I'm in this path going this way, I see a Marine coming towards me that I recognize. And it was the gunnery sergeant, well, staff sergeant at the time, gunnery sergeant now, that recruited me. It was my recruiter. So I get to see my, my recruiter and, you know, we shared a moment and, uh, it, it was cool. I mean, I knew where I was going, so it wasn't like he did me dirty. And then from there I started the process home, same way, you know, into Germany, uh, did a layover, I think in New York, not Maine, um, then came into, to California, um, to LAX. Now here's where it was in, this is where I started to realize, even though I was young, I started to realize there were things that happened to us out there. When you're out there, especially, you know, when you're popped out of the hatch of an alley V and you're going through this urban environment, everything's a threat. Every window, every door, every alley, you know, everything, you know, thing that looks like a rice bag on the side of the road can be an improvised device. Like you're constantly analyzing a thousand things every minute because your life depends on it and the life of your, of your Marines depends on it. And no one teaches you how to shut that down. So now you go into LAX and I get off this plane and, you know, my bubbles like 10 meters wide. And now there's people that are like bumping shoulders. I re I had so much anxiety just walking through LAX because I'm still doing it. I'm looking at luggages. I'm looking at doors and I'm having to retell myself like you're home, chill out, you know, just relax. And so then from LAX, 
uh, they put me on a, a private jet, flew me into Palm Springs Airport, and that's where my family was waiting for me. Went home, and thank goodness I got home when I did because baby uh, came home or was delivered a day early. The very next morning, we're in the hospital, and I'm delivering my my third little girl. That's, I mean, that's phenomenal. Um, and now, interesting thing though, you talk about sh- sh- not shutting it off or it's always on. Does it ever shut off? You you learn to control it to where it becomes absent, so you feel like it's shut off. But then you years later, you experience things. I remember one time I'm driving on the side of the freeway. You know, I think I was coming home from work. And, you know, I'm out, out here in um, Southern California. We're not too far from Box Canyon, Yuma. There's like a lot of places where the military does training. And by this point, I've been out of the military for years. And on the back of a, of a semi hauler is an old BMP vehicle that it, obviously it's on its way so the airplanes can, you know, do their practice bombing. But as soon as I see it instantly, that was one of the vehicles we're trained to be on alert for. That was an enemy vehicle. And I'm driving my little 2001 Honda Accord at the time. And I remember just everything inside me just felt frozen, you know, because that was considered a threat. And then obviously within seconds, I get my composure, kind of laughed it off. But I realized, man, there's some things back there that are, you know, they're still there. Hard, hardwired. I mean, hardwired. And what do they do in terms of verifying your mental well-being when they when you're back home and you know expected just to reintegrate into society what level of of not scrutiny but verification uh medical examinations do they do to make sure that you're integrating uh smoothly i don't know how they do it now back then i was asked if i was okay and i said i'm fine and that was the level of effort that was put into that okay so you get back home you get the biggest distraction the most beautiful distraction of all time which is a third kid what do you do? Uh, what do you do as of that point up until I guess we're going to, you know, span a 17 year period? What do you do after that when you get back home? Uh, I tell my family not to tell anybody. I didn't want anybody to know I was home. Um, and that actually took 30 days. It was 30 days before I was willing to let everybody outside of like, you know, my parents and, and her parents. Um, it took 30 days for I was like, OK, you know, let's start telling the cousins and everybody, you know, that I'm home, which, you know, people were like, well, they wanted to come see the baby because they knew that the baby was here. And so, but for 30 days, I just didn't, I just wanted to be by myself. You know, I, I didn't really go anywhere. I'd go from our house to the store to, you know, get like Infamil or something like that, or, you know, to a fast food place down. And I just kind of was a hermit crab for a month. And then it was like slowly started to integrate back with friends and family. That's very interesting. Um, and then, and then what do you, what do you do for work or what, what do you start doing for work? So uh, after that, I go and I start working for the Department of Public Social Services. So I'm going back to college. Um, I'm working for the Department of Public Social Services, and I enter the police academy. This is amazing. Like it's it's for anybody who I, I, people need to be interested in the backstory, and they need to understand who you are in terms of in terms of understanding and appreciating the absolute insanity of what you're subsequently put through, given what you've already sacrificed for your country. Uh, so you, 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 you basically work in law, you, you get trained to work in law enforcement, which you do for how long? Uh, I, I get hired in, through the academy in 2005. I get out on my own in 2006, and I keep doing my career until January 19th of 2019. Same, is it an independent or same employer for 13 years? Uh, same, same, same agency that I work for. 
the entire same time. Same agency. So you're 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 a reliable employee. You are a um, what's the oh, geez, the what do they call us? Uh, oh my goodness, I'm not a loyal citizen. What's the word? I'm I'm, I'm totally brain farting, <laughs> but you're a patriotic citizen who sacrificed more, uh, put your life on the line. I think I know the answer because I heard it in another podcast. You've never had any, never had a criminal record in your life, correct? My my Bonnie and Clyde moment was a ticket. It was a tinted windows ticket in two thousand three. In what state? I thought tinted. I'm in Florida. Tinted windows, I think, are legal here. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they were. Were they all blacked out? It was no, no. It was it's, it's Southern California. It's hot. Like so, I don't think I ever gave anyone a ticket for that <laughs> during my career because I was like, this is ridiculous. But no, it was, it was here in California. As a matter of fact, it was I was in uniform because I actually got that when I was coming back from uh, because when you get back from a deployment, even though you get to go home, you still got to keep going back to the base. So in this case, it was Camp Pendleton. But on the weekends, I would still come home. And so I actually got that ticket while I'm in my Marine Corps camis coming back from Camp Pendleton from a CHP officer, CHP officer Rice. If you're working and you're watching, that wasn't cool, man. CHP California Highway Patrol. Yeah. Huh, how much was the ticket? Oh man, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> and they don't like immediately smash out your windows because you're not allowed. I mean, what no, do you no, 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 no. It's okay. it's if you take it off, um, I think it was like ten or thirty dollars. Um, the and if you leave it on, I think it was like a hundred and some bucks back then. Okay. All right. So that's it. You got a clean record. You got you got um, you'd never been reprimanded as a as a as a U.S. Marine Corps. Nope. Uh. Okay, it's 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 crazy. So up until 2019, working law is it is it law enforcement like uniform on yeah. walking uh, well, the streets? Yeah, started off like you know patrol, you know pushing a black and white, and then worked my way into detectives, got got into gangs, and worked undercover in gangs. Okay, because I know that you have had some uh, wild experiences, or at least very <laughs> intense experiences as law enforcement, working undercover in gangs. May I? Ask, is it MS thirteen gangs? Because that's the only one, or the Bloods of the Crips, or the other two that I know. Like no, no out out here it's predominantly Hispanic gangs. Uh, actually, MS thirteen was coming into well, our exposure to MS thirteen was coming in at the tail end of my career. It was actually some of my informants, because when I was on the regional tank gang task force, we knew people from like the Mecca Oasis area out there by the Salton Sea, forever trying to track what I'm talking about. And actually, it was some of the street rats that were telling us, hey, there's these MS-13 guys coming in. And then I started looking into them, but I never had the chance to to fully uh, investigate them. Something tells me there will be a movie made about your life sometime sooner than later. But tell us for those who can't possibly undercover in gangs. What in, I mean, I, I'm thinking Training Day. I'm thinking all the movies I've ever seen. <laughs> what, what, is, what is being, I'm thinking Serpico. What, like, what, what does being undercover, what do you have to do to get undercover, get infiltrate gangs? It, you know, so shockingly, I was involved in, in four officer-involved shootings. And for the cops that are like, oh, guy was trigger-happy. No, like where they had guns and were actually shooting at me. And that all actually happened in my patrol time. Didn't have any shootings when I was actually working. Um, gangs are doing undercover. Um you you pretty much you you grow the real big beard. Um, we did we did Hispanic gangs and outlaw motorcycle gangs, and you go and you're you're getting weapons from guys. You know you're getting guys. It's it's not as glamorous as the movies make it seem. It's actually a lot more scary um, because there's situations that because you don't want to you don't want to burn this you don't want to burn the informant you don't want to burn yourself. So a lot of times your officer safety has to get compromised for that. 
and that goes against everything you've been trained for. So it makes you very uncomfortable. There was times where, you know, my partner's driving, you know, we got the informant in the passenger seat, you know, I'm in the back seat and we only had time to do a real quick, you know, search of them, but not a confident search in them. And it's one of those things where if this guy has a gun, you know, he could take out my partner or a lot of times you're going into these areas where there's a gap. Like it's, there's not a lot of, I mean, it's Southern California, a lot of desert area. So you're driving out to some of these trailer parks where your tail, your guys that have your six, they can't be that close. Well, sorry, what does what 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 have your six mean? Uh, so anytime we do something, we stay close to the guys that are undercover or in plain clothes. Uh, so if something goes wrong, you know, they give the signal, we can immediately get there and and, and protect these guys because you're, you don't have a vest or anything on, you know, like you don't have all the equipment that you would normally have if you're a uniform. Well, when you can't be that close to them, the farther away, the farther that response times, the farther, you, the more time you have to do on your own. And so when you're going out to some of these trailer parks that are in Mecca and Oasis, your, your backup may have to be, you know, three or four minutes away. And, and I know that may not seem like a lot, but that's a very long time if you have to fend for yourself. And then you start to wonder, what if this, what if this informant's setting us up? Because a lot of times their self-preservation, you know, requires that. And we were very lucky, you know, we, we never got burned by an informant, but there were some times there were things felt sticky. You know, I, I remember there was one community uh, and this one was actually a Crips community. We, we do have a Crips gang out in Palm Springs and we had to get information. You know, when you do search warrants the right way, you know, you have to land these targets, get official documentation, you know, stuff that you can attest to yourself because you're going to be swearing before a judge. And so when we, we have to make sure we see whatever our subject is going into whatever building we see it, you know, and a lot of times you have to be in scenarios that are not safe. And you got to, like in this particular situation, I had to go by myself. So I'm in a Crips apartment complex. I'm by myself. You know, I have a phone, you know, with the wired headphone acting like I'm talking to a girl that I'm looking for in the complex, but it's my partners on the other line, you know, waiting here if I scream and then you sit there, you know, I'm on the rails waiting for the target and. Those guys know who belongs there and who doesn't. And so you're, you're, you just have to wait, you know, and play it off. And it worked. We got the information we needed and, you know, we left. But I remember that was one time, man, that I was, my shirt was drenched with sweat when I was done with that one. I'll, I'll put it that way. Blood, blood in, blood out was the movie that I was thinking about that I couldn't come up with fast enough. Um, now, th th we're going to get into this as it relates to your story when you, you know, when you were put in jail. But do you, I mean... You have kids while you're doing this. I yes. presume anonymity or at least concealing your identity is, is of critical importance at the time. I mean, do you, do you not live with some sort of a fear now, nonetheless, for all of what I presume legally you might have done while you were undercover busting gangs? For the last two years, three years, it was, it was pretty high. Um, only because you know, as we get into the story, they doxed where I live. Mm -hmm. So then it became a real threat. Because I still have active cases, you know, homicide and attempt homicide cases that are in the court system, you know, so these gang members find out, well, you know, here's the main agent, you know, or the main officer, we can go kill, them. you know, we, we can take them out. So you can't live like that because it'll, you give yourself a heart attack. But in the beginning of when this happened, I wouldn't let my son um, throw out the trash. I wouldn't let anybody check the mail. I was always the first one out of the house for anything just in case somebody was was lying in wait so now it's i there's a risk there yes i just don't let it consume my life right now 
Okay, so now we're gonna now we're gonna get into the thick of this. Although I think I could spend uh, another two hours on your stories as a undercover freaking cop busting gangs. Uh, twenty nineteen, what happens? Uh, why does the why does the employment come to an end? Uh, so twenty so right before so in December of twenty eighteen, we have a change of leadership in our chief. Uh, we go from a phenomenal chief to our deputy chief takes over, and we're actually kind of excited about this because on paper. This man was one of us, you know, tactical team. He did narcotics. He did gangs. Um, he was actually the captain, lieutenant or the captain of the SWAT team when San Bernardino had the terrorist attack. So, like, we were pumped up about this guy, and he was kind of quiet while he was our deputy chief. But during this time, in this transition, uh, we started to see his true colors. And we ended up having a homicide investigation. Um, one of the detectives, Detective Heather Olson, I got no problem putting these people's names out there. These are just my opinions <laughs> or not my opinions, but these are my facts. And she comes to me to write a warrant because 90% of the warrants were going to come through me because I was the one that did gangs and the majority of the homicides we had were going to be gang related in some aspect. So I go through this problem and the case and I tell her there's no probable cause. So she gets mad. She goes to the sergeant who happens to be a friend of mine, good guy, Sergeant Alberto Reese. And he calls me to the office and he's like, He's like, Luna, that's my last name. And so I go in there and he's like, man, Heather says you don't want to do the warrant for him. I'm like, come on, sir. Overtime? You don't think I want overtime? The probable cause is not there. So I run through the series of facts. He's like, yeah, we don't got it. He calls her in, tells her, is he missing anything? No. Well, then you don't got no probable cause. So she goes to, you know, uh, Ch deputy chief at the time, Travis Walker. And you guys look him up. You'll be interested in how things turned out for him. So uh, Travis Walker, all of a sudden, we're having an emergency detective briefing. Now, here's the thing. In a homicide case, we have a briefing in the morning and we have a briefing at night. Unless there's some major change or information that comes forward, there's no briefings in between that. And that hadn't happened. So I already knew what's going on. So we go into this briefing. All the detectives are there. He kind of BSs for about a minute and a half. And then he's like, all right, well, I want warrants on that guy, that guy, and that guy. We, you know, they're pinned up on the board. And so I look at <laughs> Heather. She don't say nothing. I look over at my my buddy, the sergeant, good guy, but he is a yes, sir guy. And he don't say nothing. So I'm just I look at we used to call him DC for deputy chief. So I go, DC, well, I'm the one that got to write the warrant here. So what's the probable cause? And he gets pissed. He stands up. Um, he's bigger than me. Uh, he's got me by like six inches. He was like six, six. And he slams his fist, his fist on the conference table and he goes, uh, they're effing gangsters, Luna. They're effing gangsters. That's your probable cause. Now, he obviously said the words. He storms out, slams the door. So now I'm pissed. So I'm looking at everybody. I'm like, yeah, let me go right in the probable cause that we want to go do this because they're effing gangsters and see if we don't all end up in civil court or arrested for Fourth Amendment violations. So um, I, I can't be insubordinate. I've been ordered to write the warrants. So I tell the sergeant, hey, I'm going to write the warrants. I'll write them how she said. Now, there's a lot to this story, but it would take a whole two hours just to do this story. But one of the, the important things to this story was what, some of the information, I'm careful how I say this, some of the information we're getting was coming from a person that was related to one of the officers that we had at that time. So there were a lot of things. This is one of those cases, all cases need to be pristine, but this one definitely has to be pristine because ultimately this, this informant can be killed and they're related to, to one of ours. So I tell them, hey, start getting, you know, you, you need to look witness, witness protection, witness relocation, like all these things need to start coming into play. So I write the warrant and then I tell the sergeant, hey, I'm taking him with me as one of my buddies. So when we go to the DA's office right now, you guys don't say that I didn't try to sell this. Right. 
So me and my brother, uh, Detective Brothers, we head over to the DA's office, had a great working relationship with uh, Deputy DA Annie Lofthouse, just a phenomenal gang DA. We go drop off the warrant. Now, one of my bragging rights was to this point, I had never had a warrant denied because I, I was never in the gray area. Either I had it or I didn't. So I tell, hey, Annie, we've been up for about a day and a half. We're going to be down in the car sleeping. When you get to this, you know, give us a holler. So she's like, okay. So finally, the phone call comes in. She's like, hey, I got a big problem up here. I go, I know. So we'll be, so we go up there. So we go to the, the floor they're on. And here's where things get a little sticky. She has two warrants for this case, one that I wrote and one that the gang intervention team wrote. Now, their warrant was for the electronics once we did the warrant, you know, for the homes. She was going to approve theirs. Ours didn't have probable cause. So I said, listen, Annie, uh, I have so-and-so that's on the phone. They can answer the questions because I knew you're going to have questions and you can get this information for yourself. So she goes through, verifies that my warrant is accurate. And so what I ever did with the other one or how they dealt with it, that's beyond me. I don't know. <laughs> I just know they weren't happy about it. But this is this is the real reason my career came to an end. So I do. I tell Annie, do me a favor. Just call the sergeant. Let them hear it from you. And then, you know, I'll deal with it when we get to the station. So she does. We're driving back and the sergeant calls me. He's in a panic. He's like, she denied the warrant. I go, what do you think was going to happen? We don't have probable cause. Well, Travis Walker had all three homes already surrounded by SWAT teams. And because there's more targets than we had SWAT teams, he had to call in assistance. So you have multiple agencies involved. And this now future chief is about to look, get humiliated by everybody because as cops, we're very hard on each other, a bunch of alphas, right? So that happens. So be between the fact that that happens between the, it was just, I mean, childish things, to be honest, um, that were taking place. I had a target on my back. You know, there was only two times in my career that I was written up once when I was in training, uh, for transfer, TOK transfer knowledge thing with procedural. And then once for crashing a police car, which I'm surprised it took so long before I crashed one. Other than that, you know, I never even had so much as a citizen complaint. Like I had a very, I was very lucky to have the career that I had. And he ends up taking the reins and with within four months of him being chief, he writes me up four times, does the official termination for um, inaccurate. Well, I'm sorry. That was one of the write-ups was in, inaccurate documentation on my time card. And then the reason I got terminated was for not taking a case as a mandated reporter and for a homicide case that was just completely just, it was a terrible case. Um, nonetheless, I won't, I go to court um, it's called arbitration. There we go. I go through arbitration. Judge, here's all the facts. Luckily, I had partners that weren't intimidated by this chief. And when they took the stand, they really told the truth. And everything was documented by body cam. So I, I didn't, wasn't worried, really, honestly. And we win the case. Um, judge writes a 30 page, 36 page award letter um, saying that, I mean, th these are the judge's wor words. You're using them as a scapegoat. Um, you need to reinstitute them with back pay, make them whole. Like, I mean, it was a great a great award letter. This is where we messed up as a police union. We didn't have binding arbitration. So even though we won the arbitration case, they get to appeal it um, to the writs of state of California. So now this kind of, this leads into the FBI story off of one of the theories I have. We're scheduled to go to writs in May of 2021. By this time, the departments even came out and, and offered me a, a large amount of money. And I'm like, no, you're going to pay me a hell of a lot more than that. And I'm getting my job back. So they already knew I wasn't going to budge. And then that takes us into, <laughs> it 
you know, what happens on well, now we're going to get there but just one quick question if i'm looking here is uh travis walker the one from santa paula and its former police chief travis walker sued by second accuser is this uh the travis that, walker that's the gentleman i i told the city manager i told him listen you don't you don't even have to take my word for it this stuff's on body cameras you have other detectives telling you this guy is lying. Like I, I even told you guys realize he wanted me to fabricate a search warrant. And, and you're going to take this guy's word over mine. And they learned the hard way. Dude. Okay. So now oh, that's interesting. It's making a lot more sense in terms of, you know, how one becomes a target. 2019, this happens in 2019. It spans a little bit of time. Arbitration doesn't happen overnight. The world shuts down in March. Now I haven't surfed through your Twitter feed. I, I, you sent me some of the materials that, were the object of the complaint, but you have a, when did you have a Twitter account? Were you, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, this is not blaming and there's no, but in hindsight, you can read some of the tweets and say, if anybody wants to misunderstand a tweet, maybe I gave them some fodder, but explain what happens, how you get, um, well, basically uh, what happens during COVID and what you end up doing on Twitter. Yeah, actually, I think I opened up my Twitter in 2011 or 2012, I think is when I created it. Um, but I didn't really like it. So I was, I was on Instagram and, you know, I, <laughs> I was putting out information, uh, uh, you know, about a certain thing that they're trying to put in our bodies. I was putting out information oh, about dude, you my, could, you, you could say it. the, the, the jab, <laughs> the jab, well, I, I, I've stopped calling I've stopped even suggesting it's a vaccine, but the jab. So you, you're, right. you're, you're one of them, uh, free thinkers who might've had too much to think and you're posting some stuff and you're, you're active about it. You know, as of what, as of, from the beginning, from, from the very beginning, um, I, I'm talking about the jab. I'm talking about the election fraud. Uh, I, I'm putting it, I'm putting all that out there. So Instagram ends up taking me down. Hmm. And so I was like, man, you know, now what do I do? So I'm like, all right, I have this Twitter thing. People are there, um, you know, in that world. So let's check this out. And so I, I go to Twitter and I did, I start, and I, I was a small Twitter. It was, I think I had like 600, like a little over 600 people that were following me at the time. And I'm, I'm putting it out there. I'm, I'm not even getting Twitter. Like, I don't even violate Twitter's terms of service. And were some of the tweets spicy? Some of them were spicy. But I'm also an absolutist when it comes to the Constitution and, and, and the First Amendment. And so <laughs> the FBI, um, according to them, you know, in their, we haven't seen the whole search warrant yet because they won't give it to us. But in the seven, eight pages that they have given us three different times, they say uh, confidential citizen, confidential informant, and confidential human source. Uh, three times they're writing their document. So they say that somebody reported my Twitter account to them. This is what they tell me later. And my theory is that it's somebody at my agency or by proxy, someone to my old agency in the administrative department that was like, we're about to get served up with a multi-million dollar wrongful termination and bring this guy back. But if we can get him arrested, then we it'll, don't have to bring him back. It'll, it'll certainly color our file a little bit more. I mean, it's, 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 it's after the fact stuff, which should in theory have no relevance on the merits of the case. However, when it comes to reinstatement, I suppose, you know, being, um, arrested by the uh, being arrested and in prison might impede your ability to come back to work. So, I mean, and we'll, we'll summarize this quickly. You're, you're critical of the jab. You're critical of the 2020 election. I can only presume you are one of the, you know, one of the many people who says, holy crap, Jan 6 is coming there. 
And uh, we believe that this has been a fortified to the point of um, invalidity, constitutional invalidity. Uh, you didn't, this, this revolves around the January 6th insurrection. I'm putting it in quotes for anybody who's listening on podcast. Uh, you, you didn't go down, but you got, you got taken down by the FBI as a result of tweets relating to January 6th. Absolutely. So I was invited to the Capitol. By whom? And the FBI, uh, one of my coworkers. So during the fight for my job at the police department, uh, I had a part-time job working as an explosive canine handler, which is, plays into this. You were, and you were blowing up dogs? No, no, but no. I, no. <laughs> first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, Alpha. <laughs> for all the paw lovers, no. I, my partner was a, had paws, and we looked, we looked for, for bombs at, you know, we did Le- Levi Stadium, uh, you know, Grammys, Emmys, like all the major stuff down here in California. But so I was a, a part-time canine handler um, to detect explosives. <laughs> and, and then I worked uh, part-time originally, and then I got hired full-time to work for the Palm Springs Unified School District as one of their gang officers and one of their security officers, given my, given my background. So that's what I was doing when all this you know, t- unfolded on January 15th. So it was my partner from the school district that, you know, same, same kind of ideology that I had, a super cool black dude that was just like, hey, man, and so fine, this is how it goes down. He's like, hey, we're, me and my wife are going to go to D.C. for January 6th. We want you to go. Well, at the time, my daughter's only about a month old, month and a half old. And this is your, this is now, this is your, is this your fourth kid? Oh, no, 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 no. I got babies. So from the first, first military marriage, we can call it, I had four daughters. All of them are adults now. Um, and then I had uh, a, a relationship during my law enforcement career where I had a son um, that lasted for a few years. Okay, we're up to, and then we're up I met. To, we're up to four now. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I, I met the woman of my dreams that's going to be with me forever. Um, and we have uh, two little girls: uh, one that was born on November twentieth, twenty twenty, and then one that was born um, this this year or this well, past first, year. That's a, first of all, that's amazing. You have six kids. It'll keep you young having young kids at forty four. Uh, and your genes are going to uh, inhabit the earth, which is also something of a victory. So you, you, you seem like a very good dude. If there's anyone who's going to propagate their genes, Alpha, you seem like the prime. <laughs> you seem like the alpha candidate to do it. Um, OK, fine. So you get invited uh, yeah. and you decide not to go. And I said, I, I tell him now I can't go. And, and a lot of these conversations are documented in, in text messages. And so then and he, and he knew financially, like I was already fighting, you know, the court cases for the agency stuff. And so finally I tell him, hey, look, man, I'm strapped, so I, I can't go. You know, the money's just not there. So he goes, he reaches out to me, and he's just like, hey, we will cover everything. Like, you just pay for your food, we'll cover all the other expenses. And then I was just like, man, I still can't. You know, I've got an infant at home. So I'm invited to go. I don't go. January 15th, um, we're, we're awakened by an explosion. Um, well, but, well actually, but before we get there, just back it up a bit, because I, mean, I don't want to pull these up. I just want to find the one. You're tweeting actively in the interim. And I'm wondering, yeah. I don't know if you've ever gone through your Twitter feed to see if anybody says, hey, uh, at FBI, you might want to look into this. That's what some people tend to do. <laughs> the, as far as I can tell, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, the most objectionable one tweet that you've ever done, I think, January 6, 2021, will you fight, bleed, and maybe even die with me as we take on the evil that is now stealing our nation? I'm a Marine combat veteran, law enforcement veteran of 14 years, and my allegiance is to God with a capital G, family with a capital F, and country with a capital C. I'm ready, are you, time to patriot the fuck up, God wins. Patriot with a capital P. Uh, is, that the, is that the worst one you've done? Or the, that, the most? The that, most was the, that was the one that I think is the most spicy, and that's the one that they focused on. Like, okay. that, 
the majority of their interview was focused around that question. And it's literally that, like you sent me like a, there's a lot of stuff and I'm looking through it. And like some, some of it you say, you know, you sent me stuff that they should have looked at. But I just want to look at the incriminating stuff. That's the worst one. I, the worst that I've seen. Uh, that's the one they focused on when they interrogate you. So that, just so everybody knows, full disclosure, that's the spiciness of your tweet. Um, I don't know that you, whether or not, you, you know, it's like the Ashley Babbitt, you're asking for trouble maybe, but definitely not the amount of trouble that you got. Um, okay, so you're tweeting these things out beforehand. You say no to January 6th. January 6th comes and goes. Before they pre-dawn raid you with concussive grenades and snipers or whatever has the lasers on them, what happens as of January 6th to the raid Tweet-wise, social media-wise, and in your life, um, my life is normal. You know, it's I'm still going to work. I'm working at the at the school district. Um, I'm still on Twitter, tweeting, putting the stuff that I'm you know putting out. And a lot of us at the time kind of anticipated that the day before on January 19th that Trump was going to put this disclosure of all this election fraud um, that was out. Obviously, you know, we know that didn't come to fruition. Um, and that was because I put another tweet out there that I, I think it was like one dash 19 or one slash 19. That was the other tweet that they had asked me about. And then the other tweet that they brought up was one of the Punisher skull, but has the Roman numeral three in it. And so they were questioning about the three percent militia group. They brought that up during well, the that, interview. That's, that's during your interview. OK, but that, yeah, so those yeah. are the ones you put out before. But, Hold on. You know what? I actually have to bring those up. I think people need to see the absolute level of absurdity here. Uh, stop screen share present screen share window. Well, let's go with the spicy one first. Okay, so this is spicy one. No, this is not the spicy one. Yeah, no, this uh, is this is a spicy one. Okay, so it says nineteenth at four fifty. What does that mean? Uh, I see the the patriot oh, up one. Oh, okay, fine. Sorry, I have the wrong. I, I have the wrong one up in my backdrop. Okay, so that's spicy number one. Now the only problem is I don't know how to get rid of that. So this is one <laughs> of the spicy tweets. Yes, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring. I'm gonna remove this and see if I can do this. In real time, so let me go close that window, and I think I can bring up another one. The skull, the uh, the Punisher skull, is the one that's that that's kind of hilarious. Uh, let's see here. We go to window, and I think this one. What do we got here? Do we see nineteen? This is nineteenth. Yes. What, what's this one about? So that's when we thought Trump was going to come out. Well, I won't say we, but that's when I thought that Trump was going to come out and, and drop all the information about the election fraud that had been. Okay, discovered so in that's not incriminating that's, per se that's just showing a frame of mind that you were buying into this and that you were okay and then we got uh, let's oh i can't find the punisher i'll bring the punisher on up afterwards okay so you're tweeting in the meantime you have no idea what's going on january 6 comes or comes and goes and um and then you wake up with a wonderful knock on the door and it's not mr rogers on january 15th I wish it would have been a knock on the door <laughs> a knock on the door would have been a lot a lot safer than what transpired um, we're, we're sleeping and there's an explosion, um, or a loud boom that's outside. I hear my truck alarm go off and then I hear the house alarm go off. Now, everybody got to remember, I used to work undercover doing the gang stuff as we talked about. And the first thing that comes to mind, you know, if some, cause there's only like three or four times in, you know, since we've lived at this house that we rented where, you know, something's happened, a sound or something outside or alarm goes off. And I'll grab my old duty weapon that I had on the nightstand, you know, to confront whatever threats out there. By the grace of God and only the grace of God on this particular morning, I didn't grab my gun. I grabbed my phone. And so as I ran to the alarm panel, I'm turning off the alarm. Well, the front door, it's an Adobe style house. So the front door is like textured glass. So as I'm turning it off, the missus starts screaming at me, get away from the door, get away from the door. And I look and there's like a dozen red dots. 
that are, you know, scanning the, the glass on the door. Then my phone goes off and it's the FBI dispatcher saying, hey, this is the FBI. We have your house surrounded. You need to come out. You know, kids are crying. What's the, what, what were the explosions? I mean, you'll find out afterwards, but what were the, the explosions that needed to precede the phone call? Flashbangs. To, for what purpose? To wake you up? Well, so uh, this is my opinion. So not only was I on a tactical team, I used to plan tactical operations. I've planned operations with three and 400 cops, multiple jurisdictions, federal agencies, military agencies. Like I used to plan these things. And there's a, there's a, there's a matrix that we go through, especially if we're going to, you know, incorporate a SWAT team, you know, or do dynamic entries. There's a lot that goes into it, not just to protect the, the officers, but liability, you know, to protect, you know, the suspects, whoever you're going after. Every time I've ever been part of a dynamic search warrant, flashbangs was one of the last things that's ever used. And in today's day and age, most of what happens is called surrounding callouts. We surround the home, we get lights on, you know, we secure the area, and then we get on the megaphones. You know, this is the police, this is the FBI, come out with your hands up. We attempt contact that way. Once we can't, by this time, we've already had the numbers because we've, we've been watching and doing this house probably for at least a few weeks. Now we attempt contact via phone. If that doesn't work, we get to the megaphones again. You know, we may even, depending on, you know, the threat of, of the situation, maybe even put a robot to go to the door. Flashbangs is the last thing you do because when you do that, it's the shock and awe because now you're going to make entry. Here comes the dynamic entry and, and you're trying to get the suspect, you know, off guard so that you can take them down. So you have the advantage. It is my opinion based off of my experience. And they, I've talked they to wanted a lot you of, to, They wanted you to come to the door with a fucking gun so they could shoot you. That is exactly what I believe they wanted to happen. It, holy shit. And, and it's not, it's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I've never done law enforcement, never been in the military. All that I know is that when you wake up and you don't know if that's a gunshot that just went off, your first reaction is to go to the, you know, is to grab a gun and defend. And especially since they do the whatever the flashbangs, concussive grenades, and then don't immediately enter, what did they think any rational person would do? Who, who was the guy that they just, the, 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 uh, the Facebook post old guy, blind, partially handicapped that they executed because they get uh, someone to respond to what they think is a confrontation? Well, I don't remember his name now, but no, dude, that's, 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 there's no other, there's no other rational explanation. Flashbangs, flashbangs, and then they call you. And then they call. And, this, and, there's, I, I, there's, no. and there's a video of it. So no, nobody has to take my word for it. It's, I was it's literally just going to ask you if this is documented for those who don't believe. Where, is the video disclosed, communicated, public? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it's in that file I sent you. There's one that says uh, well, surveillance video or video hold surveillance. Hold on just one second, sir. All right. Now, uh, they've got alpha. I'm looking at the folder. The folder's FBI post. Press negative media, same district. Surveillance video. Hold on a second. Let's, uh, let's, let's, is it FBI SWAT attacks Alfredo Luna's home? Yep. Holy mf -er. I'm trying not to swear. It was a New Year's resolution that I made yesterday, but I'm going to not abide by it whatsoever. Here we go. This is it right here. Okay, th this is it. Is there audio yeah. on this? No, there's no audio. So that's, That's remember. people on a truck. There's one, two, three. Dude, this is fucking insane. Remember, zero criminal record. As a matter of fact, just to give people an idea of my background, uh, decorated Marine at Combat Meritorious Promotion. Um, as a police officer, I have congressional awards. I was awarded the Medal of Valor. 
Uh, I have an award from the FBI signed by James Comey. Not proud of who signed it, but I, I, earned, I earned my award. Um, multiple accommodations uh, from the chief. Like I, I had a, I had a law enforcement career that you know we all want as an officer. I was very, very, very lucky. If you don't mind, uh, I was going to call you Luna, but I'll, I'll, if, uh, Alpha, um, I'm going to let this video play while we continue talking. Uh, and I didn't want to ask you these questions because it's almost like it's almost demeaning. Like, did you win any awards that might make this even more egregious? Holy shit. Okay, so yeah. it's, so the, it's, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so the truck that's in the middle, um, you guys can keep your focus on there. The one to the far right is the armored vehicle. Uh, at the edge of the screen, that's the guys that's on the turret mounted with a rifle. But you're going to see the guy uh, in that middle truck in a little while. Uh, right that's going to throw. Do you, see, yeah. do you see my cursor? You see the cursor. Yeah, right? yeah I see it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're, you'll, you'll see you, a guy you, that throws a flashbang from there. You live in a neighborhood. Like you have neighbors across the street now. Yeah, yeah. This is my neighbor's surveillance camera. Oh, I see. Did they? Did you get that from your neighbor? Or did you get this from yeah. the FBI? No, no, no. My my neighbor gave this to me. Oh my! Bra I'll tell you what. Bra good man, because uh, a, a lot of people would have been afraid to to come forward and, well, and scared, help out. Like scared this. shitless. No, no crap. Yeah. I mean, this is okay. So. What time? Is, this is uh, pre-dawn before six. Yeah, this is uh, zero five something in the morning. I mean, I, I like to think that even these flashing lights probably would have woken me up because I'm a very, very light sleeper. But um, OK, so we're going to keep watching this. Um, should I yeah. skip it? Should I skip it? Oh, no, two minutes and now, whatever. I, I think the, the flashbang parts come in after the flashbang. It's it's pretty much them. Just there's the flashbang. Oh, that, that was it. Hold on a second. Did yeah. I just miss it? I think it was like at 157 or 158 when it went off. Because we're we're looking at your house. Your house is behind the, the the truck with the flashing lights. Yeah. So top right corner, you guys will see the the here here it goes. Wait, did we miss it again? Yeah, I think actually I think it was probably farther back. The heck, here. come on, man. Let's do this. Okay, we're at 140. We did just see it. I mean, we just saw it. Oh, am I going to back up to 130? No, 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 no. That, that bright light you saw was them turning the spotlight on the front door. Okay. Uh, the flashbang is very obvious. Like, you, it's, you'll see the explosion. Okay, so we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to let it play. And for those who are listening on podcast, I'll narrate. The blinking lights of the truck, while a corrupt and weaponized FBI prepares to try to provoke a fatal response from a man who they're raiding with no better reason. Okay, so they flash the lights. I'm just walking around. It's this is like, did they just did this to the guy in uh, the other Jan Sixer guy in I forget what state now, New Jersey, where they, they issued a like a nationwide manhunt and went door to door. There you go. That was it. Yep. Okay, and we're at two eleven. Okay. So now you can see my truck, my truck alarm in the driveway. The lights are flashing, alarms going off. The house alarms going off. That's actually they threw it in front of my son's bedroom window. Is, is where they deployed it at. And now, I heard you say this, but I'll ask it. It was on another podcast. We're going to get it out here for the sake of it. Um, does anything else happen in this video? No, no. After this, okay. the only thing that happens is you'll see me walk out and then they'll handcuff me. But it's, it's about a minute or so before that happens. There I am. Um, they, um, you mentioned that before anybody does any of these types of raids, they know the layout of the house. They know who's there so they can avoid risks. Um, so the, not the theory, but the reasonable expectation is not only did they know that you had two young kids in the house, they presumably even knew where their rooms were. Absolutely. So they throw, it's not a concussive grenade. It's a, um, flashbang. Sorry, flashbang. And so what actually, what's the difference between a concussive grenade and a flashbang? 
one's one's going to be more sound oriented, um, and the the flashbang is it's not so much sound, but you're going to get the percussion and you're going to get the the bright light to disorient you. So they do that. You do not pick up your gun. You go down with your phone. And then they call you like, hey, we surrounded your house and just detonated a flashbang. Didn't know if you hear it. Um, good morning. That, that's exactly what happened. Who is on the Are you allowed mentioning who's on the phone with you or who calls you? It, it just they identify themselves as the FBI dispatcher. So they so had your, and they had your number. They had your number and all of this, like literally. Absolutely. OK, so how long this raid? So tell us what happens during this raid, because it's it, it in and of itself is a traumatic experience. So, yeah. So you see me come out, you know, shorts and a T-shirt. Um, they sit me on the sidewalk. They handcuff me, sit me on the sidewalk. I've already probably asked for the search warrant three or four times. When the agents get here, they'll give it to you. And then the worst part of that whole day um, is what I have to witness. You know, I chose a military life. I chose a law enforcement life. And to come out with all those guns pointed at you, and it's not a training scenario, it's pretty intense. But as as intense and scary as it was for me, my family's not. They're not military. They're not law enforcement. They're just regular people. And I had to see, you know, my missus and my, my teenage stepdaughter, my teenage son. It was his birthday, as a matter of fact. This happened on his birthday. I, I had to see them come out with guns pointed at them and be ordered, just the same way I was. They weren't handcuffed, but the same orders I was. And then they sat them across the street, um, actually in front of the house where the, the surveillance camera is. And in the dark early mornings of January here in California. And trust me, in, even though it's California, it's still really cold. And then I noticed that, you know, my missus doesn't have the newborn. She was two months at the time, Alexandria. And she's pleading with them to go inside to get the baby, and they won't let her. So I tell the the operators that are babysitting me, I'm like, hey, man, like, we have a newborn in there. Let her go get the newborn. And they wouldn't, you know. So we're outside for about a good probably hour and a half, two hours um, before my family. The sun was up by the time they finally let my family go inside. And this is what I told them. You could tell from the pit. It's a little house, little Adobe-style house that we rent. And, and I've ran these kind of, you know, searches. So I told him, I go, look, we don't have a lot of stuff, man. Go, go, go render the living room secure. Take my family inside. It's cold. And no, nothing, no search warrant, no nothing. They finally take my family inside and they take me to the, the backyard. And, and that's where they proceed to force the interview. Um, I'm going to get to that interview in a second. What, what blows my mind, uh, who's with your, your two month old for the two? She's by herself and whoever was in my house at the time from, from the operators. Is anyone, I'm, I'm not trying to be, is anyone babysitting the kid, making sure the kid's not, she's not choking on a pacifier or is like anybody watching? And then who the hell, who the hell would, is anyone in the room with your two month old? We don't know. They've never told us. Holy shit. Okay. I mean, but what's, what's the rationale to this? Like, well, I mean, I, I, are you, do you feel like you're dealing with automatons where you're like, dude, can my wife get our two month old kid? And what do they do? do they, are they sitting there smiling? Do they look like they're happy doing this or do they look like they... Uh, are following orders. You know, I give, I struggle this part, man. I struggle this part because I, I've, I've been on that kind of team. And so I, I try to put myself in their shoes during what they're doing to me. So I know it's not going to be uncommon to see laughing and joking that can be completely disconnected from what they're doing. But I also know that their their presence and their attitude towards me and my family initially because things do change initially was very aggressive and it's it's something that it, it's what i would expect if we were being confrontational with them 
you know, but everything that I did and I could hear my family, everything that all the requests we're making were all very professional, but there's this level of just aggression that they had. And I have a theory to that later, but it was, it's intended to provoke a violent response from you. Even when you're in cuffs, it, that's, that's I, I knew cause you're a dad. Every party you wants to get up and just jump up, handcuffs is on and be like, I'm going to go and check on my daughter. I don't care what you guys say. But I also know that the second I do that, any leg I have in the fight, I just gave it away. They're going to use it against me. That's going to turn into obstructing, resisting arrest. Now, now I'm giving them a crime to, to constitute the work they're doing. And I, I just had to bite my lip on this one, man. And it was hard. It's, un it's unforgivable. And there's, there's no... Um... Okay, so um, you're, when do they question you? Do they question you after you, you get your kid or your wife gets your kid, or is this in the two hours in between that they're questioning you? So, I, I, well, hindsight, I learned, but at the time, I don't know. Um, I see them take my family, and I'm best guess on the sun was probably around 7 in the morning, maybe 7.30. Um, they take me to the backyard. Um, I'm still handcuffed. They sit me on one of my patio chairs. Um, a couple of SWAT guys that are surrounding me. And then the two, um, FBI agents show up to do the interview. And as soon as they show up, the first thing I said, Hey, can I go inside and check on my family? And um, it's declined. They tell me, no, you got to sit down. Um, and I have no idea. I'm sitting here. I got these two agents. There's three or four SWAT guys off to the side. Like, like I'm going to do anything. I mean, it was, it was insulting. If anything, that's what I was upset about with them. And I have no idea. Is, is my family handcuffed? Is my family separated? You know, it's my son's birthday. Has, has anybody checked on him? Like, there's all these questions. They're not answering it. And they won't even let me go in the house. Are they, so are it's they, just like we got the two FBI agents. I mean, just for the just for the sake of it, doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all. I just want to visualize. Are they are they men, women, white, black? Like, what do they look like? It's it's two. It's two Mexican um, FBI agents. Um, well, one is actually he's a detective for the Rialto Police Department who's assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. That's how they get jurisdiction, which is a great conversation to have one day. Um, he's 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 Mexican, uh, clear as Mexican. The actual uh, special agent Armenta, um, he's Mexican, maybe uh, mixed with something. You know, he's he's a real light-skinned Mexican guy, kind of like myself. Um, he, he looks younger, I would say probably early 30s. Um, and then uh, Detective Candius. He looked older than me. I would say probably uh, late forties, early fifties. And and do they they look like they're getting pleasure out of the power play here? Um, our Armenta doesn't. Uh, Armenta actually, my opinion of him at the time was he looked new. He looked like a rookie. Mm -hmm. um, Detective Candius, um, he just looked uh, upset, like like he didn't want to be there. Uh, like like he, he looked like I was the inconvenience for him. Is it, kind of. I mean, people could write it off to good cop, bad cop, you know, maybe. Um, but, you know, that, that's kind of the way they look. They were, they were plain clothes just with the FBI jackets. Um, everybody else were in the SWAT uniforms. Um, okay, and then they start asking you questions, and you're a skeptic. I mean, you, you, you've showed critical thinking prior to. You believe the election was heavily fortified, and anybody who disagrees is, you know, out in left field. Uh, so you should know better than to talk to the enemy. Are you saying lawyer, 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 or how, how does this, how does this interrogation go? The first words out of my mouth were, can I go and check on my family? That got denied. I said, can I see the search warrant? We're going to get it to you. And then, the, then by this time, uh, our mentors opened up his black leather bifold and I see printouts from my Twitter 
And as, and he sees that I see it and he makes a statement. He goes, we're here to question you about your social media being potentially violent. Did you so have my, to do everything you just did to question me on my social media? Well, in my head, I'm thinking you got to be effing kidding me. This, this is why you're here. This is why you pointed guns at my kids. This is why my baby was by herself. This is why my house is probably being turned upside down right now because of effing tweets. Like, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not verbalizing it, but I'm thinking it. And what actually comes out of my mouth is nothing in my social media is violent and I want my attorney. And they say declined or just, uh, oh, no, let's just ignore that and continue asking you questions. Uh, their response is, uh, we'll let you get to your family, but we got to talk to you first. So it's, you know, go with the program or who, who knows where they're going to go. But they leverage my family against me. And so you continue talking to them and answering questions. I knew I had to be very careful, you know, obviously given the career that I had, you know, and my advice to anybody, listen, don't, don't ever do it. You know, e even if you know you're hundred percent innocent, don't ever talk to law enforcement because things will be taken out of context and used against you. So always yeah. consult your attorney. Mike, Michael Flynn is the prime example of not talking to them, even when you, even when you think they're being friendly, but especially when they are there as adversaries overt. Yeah. And so <laughs> they come out and that the spicy tweets, the first printout they give me and they're like, What's this about? I mean, I, I, the answer is, are you fucking kidding me, officer? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't even. Uh, how long does this, how long do they, uh, does the interrogate, or how long does this last? I don't know. Call it interrogation. This, this, this interrogation, it was an interrogation. It goes on for, I would say, at least two to three hours. Shut up. And uh, from what I understand from, from other podcasts, you don't have the audio or the video of this. Uh, they have the audio, so we were able to get an audio recording of the interview. So anything that I'm saying about what they asked me is documented. We have a copy of the audio. They have a copy of the audio. However, some of the things that unfolded later get a little bit more shady. But they go through. Now, during the interview, probably the two most important things that transpire, because not that it's related to my case, but anybody out there that has been told that this is not the political strong arm of the government that the FBI is being utilized for, yeah. they asked me two questions. And never in my career have I ever asked these two questions. And remember, this is recorded. So anybody wants proof, we'll send them the sound bite. They asked me, who'd you vote for for, for president? I said, Donald Trump. And they asked me, what political party are you registered with? I said, I'm a Republican. It's totally normal. It's, it's, all, it's almost like being arrested and being asked what religion you are. I mean, it, It's... It, I don't know if they were saying it to get me pissed, because they did. I was upset. You know, I didn't show up, but in, internally I was, I was, I was more mad than I already was. And then right before the interview concluded, Sorry, you know, if, it, if I may, were those questions early on in the interview or later on in the interview? Uh, I would say those are a little bit more than halfway through. Okay. And so then when we get to, well, so when they were asking me about the, I'll go back to the Punisher skull because they bring out that printout and they're all, what's this? I go, that's the Chris Kyle Punisher skull. And so this is when Candius, the older gentleman he goes, no, it's not. You know what it is? I said, yeah, it's the Chris Kyle skull. You know, the American sniper. He goes, no, that's a militia. And so we, we have this little back and forth argument. He goes, you're going to tell me you don't know what the three percenters are? And I said, no. I go, I, I work OMGs. I know what one percenters are. So you want me to make an educated guess here? I will. So he proceeds to tell me that the three percent militia is it took three percent of the Americans to be a part of the revolution that took over this country. And then my response to him is, well, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll see if you're accurate in that take. I go, but this is the Chris Kyle skull. 
And so that concludes that part. Now, you're going to, I think you more than a lot of people, unless there's other, you know, attorneys or people in law enforcement will know why this statement he makes. And this is towards the end of the interview. So important because this one actually made my stomach turn. You just, I just shared everything that happened with this forced interview, you know, ignoring my, my request for my attorney. And then this is what detective Kansas tells me. He says, his well, name is detective Candyass. <laughs> that's what a lot of people have, have started to, to call okay. him. <laughs> and, and I'm okay with it. Um, he comes out and he makes a statement. He goes, he goes, you just know how to tweet without getting in trouble. Now I'll translate this for the audience. This is a detective who the day before was just in front of a judge, raised his right hand and swore for the judge that everything in that search warrant is true and accurate to the best of his knowledge. So in this case, they're investigating domestic terrorism based off my social media. So you're telling the judge that you're investigating this criminal element of these tweets because they're, they're saying that I wanted to disrupt the January 20th inauguration. And, and I'll, I'll explain that part because it, it gets crazier. But now he makes the statement to me recorded that he already knows that I tweeted in a way that wasn't criminal. So how did you tell a judge that these were criminal terrorist threats, you know, California Penal Code 422, if you already knew and had the mindset that I didn't meet that threshold? You lied. You lied to a judge. No, no, no. The, the judge just believed something different than he believed. It was just his opinion, although he had to swear to it in a, I presume, in an affidavit for the warrant. A hundred percent. So then I start finding out they're telling me they're going to take my guns. So in California, red flag law state, they got a California gun violence protective order um, to take my firearms. And then the next day they filed for the criminal probable cause search warrant. Now, why this is important in 14 years of law enforcement, I never knew this loophole. And we learned this when we went to court because we we're trying to get the, the search warrant um, suppressed because of exculpatory information, Brady information, there's just a lot to it. But what the judge told us was even though if the judge agreed that, you know, these were lies and there was all these omissions and the probable cause wasn't met, the fact that they had the gun violence protective order first to precede it, he was always going to sign that probable cause search warrant for the criminal um, terrorist threats. So in other words, if you live in a red flag state, you can have law enforcement generate this, you know, anonymous party or this informant to say you're a threat, get that, come to your home and now search for the crime. Wow. It, it, that is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying to me. It's, it's an amazing thing. Like I, I've said this about Canada where the gun ownership laws are so restrictive and so prohibitively, um, uh, like seriously in terms of infractions or violations that it's not, it's an, it's a liability to own a firearm. Own, own a shotgun and don't, ha you know, leave it loaded and someone come and you get raided jail for two years. Uh, you know, don't don't have a, a, a trigger lock on it jail. And so, like, it's it's still legal, but it's such a liability of your freedom to own that it'll just be a deterrent for anybody, which sounds something similar to commie California. Um, OK, so where were we now? You, you do the interview. They end the interview. You just know so how to I, tweet. Without well, I asked, trouble. I asked them because. <laughs> I'm starting to realize these guys, or at least these two FBI agents, are not as smart as what I thought the FBI was. Like, I'm starting to realize this through their line of questioning. So I ask them, how did you guys get, because I ask them, I go, why are you guys, why did you guys even do this for my social media? 
Well, because we believe that you're trying to disrupt the January 20th inauguration with these tweets. And so I ask them, how? With what tweet? What, what, what tweet, what private message, what phone call? Because by this time, they're, they're even asking me questions, you know, back in November of 2020 or October 2020, what were you doing up near San Francisco? And I was like, we were recertifying for our canines. So they already had gone through my banking information, my text message information, my geograph. They already knew all about me before they showed up to my house and they're questioning me. And obviously I had legitimate reasons for everywhere I was. So when we get to this point, I said, as a matter of fact, just a few days ago, I tweeted, and this is in those tweets that I said they, they never brought up. It's a, it's like a red banner with the Statue of Liberty. There was this tweet circulating social media, and it was telling people to go to the national capital or the state capital and to go armed. But, but nobody on this, on this post was taking any, any claim to it, and it was spreading like wildfire. So a bunch of us quote tweeted this and said, do not go. This is an Antifa. This is, that's the one. Uh, so you see what I put? This is a BLM and Antifa trap. Do not attend. Share this. So I immediately ask them, I just posted this a few days ago. How did you get a judge to sign off on a search warrant that I'm telling people to go and disrupt the inauguration when I just tweeted the opposite, telling people not to? Now, they should have just stuck with the lies they're already doing and said they didn't know what I was talking about. But they actually slipped up and said, well, we saw that. But you're telling people not to go because it's BLM and Antifa. And so I tell them, I don't care if I'm telling people not to go because it's too cold or too hot. I'm still telling people not to go. So how do you convince a judge? And the look on oh, their you, face told me that this wasn't show. in the search warrant. Yeah. How do you convince a judge? Let let him remain ignorant and everybody can plead plausible deniability. And well, at least the judge will say, I didn't see it. What I rely on, you know, an FBI that falsifies evidence to get spy warrants against Carter Page. How am I supposed to know that Kleinfeld, his name is not Kleinfeld, Kleinsmith, um, falsified evidence. How am I supposed to know the FBI guys didn't show me exculpatory tweets that would have undermined any... All right, so this this interview lasts a few hours, and, and then they take you to jail, right? No, no. So here's here's what they do. They, they take my guns. Um, now they've moved me into the dining room of my house, so this is the first time I'm actually seeing my family as they're getting ready to leave. Um, and now they bring me the, the, the face page from the search warrant, finally, at the conclusion of all this. And so I ask them, I go, well, what do you guys want from me? Like, what is it that you want? So my family doesn't have to worry about this happening again. And so our mentor says, he goes, well, you seem like a good guy. This is your chance to take the off ramp and just stop tweeting about the government. Now, it doesn't really sit in that statement of what he said to later on the day, you know, when you start to process it all. And then I realized what he was actually telling me. He's like, shut up, <laughs> you know, just censor yourself and, and the problems go away. But they leave, they don't arrest me, they give me a, a property receipt. I ask them. Now, this is where it's a theory. Um, Hold but on, based sorry. Off, what does a property receipt mean? Uh, a property receipt. So anytime we do a search warrant, anything we take from that house, uh, anything, you have to you have to document it. Okay. And then you give it to the person saying, hey, here's a list of everything that we took. So this way there's a receipt of it. So they give me a proper, property receipt of, of all my firearms and firearms-related things, magazines, all that stuff. Um, and, and then they leave. So that's January 15th on the evening of January 20th, inauguration day is when they arrest me. So I'm working at the school district. I'm, I'm, I'm out patrol. It's in the evening time. And one of my partners, uh, retired law enforcement, 
he calls me and it, all my partners kind of know what's what what has happened by this time because it's been on it's been all over the local media and he's like hey man there's some unmarked cars surrounding the the school district and there's some marked units parked a little bit ways down <laughs> so i know from my experience you don't do that when you're going to come question somebody you do that when you're going to arrest somebody so i call my supervisor who happens to be a friend and i say hey hey rudy uh, more than likely they're going to arrest me I don't want to get arrested in the school uniform and have that make the, the front page of the local news on top of everything. I'm going to go home. I'm going to change into civvies, make sure my family's dialed in on what they need to do. And then I'll go over there and, you know, walk into whatever they got going. I do that. Families in tears and make sure they have the number of the attorney, you know, make sure that, you know, they have my, my bank card and pin number and all that stuff. Cause I don't know how long this is going to take because this is all at the beginning of when all this was happening to people. So we didn't really know. So I make my way. Um, I meet them across the the school district uh, where we where we put gas in our vehicles, right next to Palm Springs International Airport. Um, Palm Springs PD is there, and the FBI um, agents are there. Well, I know the Palm Springs guys. These are it was a neighboring agency. I've worked with these guys for years. Uh, so the sergeant comes over and he's like, "Hey, Looney, you know what this is about?" I'm, yeah, it's my social media man. They were just at my house a few days ago. He goes, "No, um, it's a warrant for an assault rifle." I said, "No." I go, "It's for my social media. They were just at my house a few days ago." By this time, the agents come over, and I don't know if they probably thought he was giving me insider information or what, but they kind of, you know, interrupt it, and they tell me, yeah, you're under arrest, California Penal Code 30605, possession of assault rifle. I'm pissed, and so my supervisor's still there. He sees that now now it's going to surface my anger, and he's looking at me, and he's just like, just shut up. Don't, don't say anything. So then I said, I go, what's my bail? Because I figured my bail would be somewhere between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars, and they go, it's a quarter of a million dollars. So I go, what are the other charges? And they go, there are no other charges. So then I knew they did what's called a bail enhancement form. Mm-hmm. Now, now for California, let me, I've only done them maybe three or four times in my career. Like this is reserved for like the most like intense scenarios. Like like you arrest a, a, a domestic violence suspect, and if this person gets out, they're going to kill the victim. Like they're going to finish it off. Like, that's what this is reserved for. And this is what they did to me. They did a bail enhancement for me. To this day, they haven't given it to us. Uh, California Penal Code 30605 defines possession of an assault weapon. Anyone within the state possesses an assault weapon. I don't know what that means yet. Except as provided in this chapter, will be punished by imprisonment for up to a year, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I know the punchline to this because I listened to another interview. The assault weapon that they charged you with and arrested you with was your service weapon? It's my police patrol rifle. I mean, and, no, 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 Alpha, you got you to gotta make it make sense. Uh, service patrol rifle in what state? California. So what the hell does an assault rifle mean under that provision of law well, for someone who has no idea? There's, there's, well, there's no such thing as an assault rifle. I it's know. Rifle, <laughs> you know? Um, so the, the, the law is, you know, it's already off to a bad start with that. But anybody that has, and the, this law changes so often, I know it just changed again for the beginning of 2024. It's any rifle um, that has a center, it's center fire, pistol grip, 16 inch barrel, and a shoulder ten, fire. Ten, and 10 rounds, I think. Let's see here. Let's see, uh, let's see here. Semi-automatic center rifles with fixed magazines, which can accept more than 10 rounds. Semi-automatic center rifles, which are less than 30 inches long. And semi-automatic center rifle. I don't know what a semi-automatic center rifle means. What is a center uh, rifle? So when you look center at the fire, cartridge, sorry. yeah, when you look, when you look at the cartridge, um, in the middle of that cartridge, 
um, is where it has the primer, which is pretty much, you know, any bullet. And and I'm probably getting this wrong. I'm not, I won't claim to be an expert, a weapons expert when it comes to that. Um, but it'll fire it'll go down the rifling uh, of the rifle. I believe if I got that right, it's been a couple of years, you guys, I got rusty. You, you, you'll get, you'll get made fun of on the rumble chat if you got it wrong. But <laughs> bottom, bottom line kicker to all of this is the alleged illegal assault rifle that you have in your possession is your service rifle from when you were a police officer. And, and they're saying there's no record of it. Now, remember, I, I used this for about 11 years, 10, 10 or 11 years. The agency has paperwork on it. Every time we qualify, we don't just write down our qualifications. California is very strict for those that don't know. Every weapon we have to qualify, including our off-duty firearms, we were writing down the serial number. Sergeants and lieutenants are signing off on it. And in our agency, we do this at minimum of three times a year. So you're talking over, well over at least 30 different times this weapon being documented with me. On top of that, I'll, I'll go a little slow here. You'll see. Let me see if I can make you bigger. Hold on. I'll go like this. Wrong one. Hold on. I'll bring you to this side. There. Look at this. Oh. You'll okay. see it. And this is dated October 4th of 2011. State of California to the Department of Justice. You'll see my name right over here. You'll see, for anyone that wants to verify, there's the serial number, the weapon. You can you can corroborate that against. Don't call the, it a weapon. You're going to get in trouble if you call it a weapon. A <laughs> firearm. A firearm. <laughs> you know my signature, the chief signature. Now, bless my mom's heart. Um, my mom was one of those people that. Uh, you keep every receipt for like 20 years. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. Two things that happen, and for those that are unfamiliar with the Jeremy Brown case, you know, go listen to his case and you'll you'll think, I don't think their intentions were to arrest me for my rifle. I think they foobarred something and this was the fallback plan. And I think that's why it happened a couple days later versus that day. When during the, the the interrogation, I asked them, "Hey, you guys aren't taking my explosive orders, are you?" And they said, "Yeah, you're not supposed to have them." And because remember, I'm a canine handler, so there's certain orders and stuff that we have um, to do this. And I said, "Yes, I do. I have my ATF license. It's in my truck. I'm a Marine, so like everything, I know where everything's at. You take ten cents from the truck, I'm going to know about it." And so I go go to my you go to my um, uh, glove department. And right under the black folder with my manual and insurance, all that is a plastic sheet. And inside that plastic sheet is my ATF certification. Because anytime we go to work, it has to be with us as we're transporting this stuff. They come back. It's not there. Where else could it be? I'm like, no, trust me, it's there. They come back. It's not there. I go, well, you can check in the cases. Because I had a, uh, a container where I keep all this stuff stored together. Um, and what's well, not there? Based on everything that I've been through, because there's more to this case too. Hopefully we can get to it. It's my it's my belief they were going to do to me what they did to Jeremy Brown. They were going to say I was in possession of explosives that I wasn't supposed to have and that that's where I was going to get arrested. Now, you're not supposed to make copies of those certifications. However, like I said, the way I was raised is you make copies of everything. That's the way my mom raised me. So I had a copy, and I don't think they knew. So when they left and I called my attorney to tell her, tell her what happened, I said, hey, they're saying I don't have this, and they couldn't find it. I even went and looked, and I couldn't find it. So somebody took it and probably got rid of it or destroyed it. But I had a copy of it. And so my attorney says, send it to two people. Don't say who you're sending it to, and send me a copy. And so the following day, um, she ends up sending the, or I think, or maybe that night, that night or the following day, 
she sends that over to them. So they knew that you can't, they you couldn't can't, arrest you. You couldn't that. lie about that. Yeah. So I, I think they went over and went the rifle route and probably with the same agency that I think is the one that's the confidential informant, um, probably got rid of any records that the agency had, not knowing that I had a copy from the original as well. well. It's, it's so, um, okay, so hold on. Uh, had a thought about, oh, the explosives would have been certainly easier to go after you as being a domestic terrorist if you're unlawfully in possession of explosive material. Um, the rifle, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you have photographs, like ample evidence that you have been in possession of this in, in the line of service for years? It's, it's in the, the spicy tweet. There's a picture of me in uniform holding that rifle. This is, it's, it's, actually, it's, un, it's actually unbelievable. So they'll just find, you know, show me the man, I'll find you the, the crime, Le Vrai They come and get you on the 20th, arrest you for unlawful possession of a, a, an assault rifle under California law, which was your service rifle from when you were law enforcement, and they take you off to jail or wherever, remand. Yeah. You know, I, I did leave out something, and it's important. During the raid, when, when we execute a search warrant, 99% of the time, nothing's an absolute in this case, we start from the front of the property and we work our way back. Narcotics being the exception, because sometimes you got to get there before it's destroyed. But the majority of the time, we're going to start from the beginning of the property line and work back. So the driveway, the garage, and then depending on the layout of the house, and which is what they did in my situation. So they destroyed my truck, destroyed my garage, my son's bedroom, and it was his birthday again, which it pisses me off. His bedroom's destroyed. Well, when they get to the hallway where my, my stepdaughter is, by this time, uh, and we know this because she communicated it to me, she's in her bedroom. Um, she's being babysitted by one of the SWAT operators, and she says they all congregate right there in the hallway. Well, in that hallway is all the accolades I was telling you about, the Medal of Valor, the commendations, the, the FBI award. It's all on this wall. They're all congregated there, and one of the guys asks who she refers to as the bald guy, and if I'm correct, I think it was the team leader, asked the bald guy, hey, are we arresting this guy? And he says, no, I think this is one of the good guys. Now, like I said, everything to this point in my house has been destroyed. The rest of my house was treated with complete respect. My bedroom where all my firearms are housed, they even folded clothes and put everything back. It's like two different teams hit it. What that tells me is when they had that zero dark 30 briefing with these FBI agents, they probably really had these guys thinking because this is early on, you know, in all this. They probably really had them guys thinking they're going to go deal with some bad cop, you know, some dangerous, you know, combat veteran. Like they, they really probably thought they were going after domestic terrorists. And when they started to see my family's behavior, my behavior started to see, you know, what's decorated on the walls, the lack of certain allegations that they were putting out there, like QAnon stuff. You know, my coffee table has two books, the Bible and the Constitution. When all this started to unfold, I think they realized we weren't given the complete picture here and it shifted uh, as far as the SWAT operators, it shifted the way they treated my family and my home. Just not, not so much with the FBI. Not with the FBI agents. They, they, uh, there's nothing that's going to convince me otherwise than they wanted to kill you the, with the immediate raid, period, like they had with that old guy in, in, I forget where it was now, but everybody knows who I'm talking about, uh, you know, Ruby Ridge and Waco and whatever, and it's just uh, history doesn't repeat, but it tends to rhyme. So they come and yeah. they, they get you on the gun charge and then they, they haul you off to wherever. Yeah, they, they tell me I have a quarter million dollar bail and, and then they ask me, do you want to go to the Indio jail or the Banning jail? Well, I have homicide suspects at both jails. So I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's My life's going to be in danger at, at either one. And, so and they have a, this is what I, everyone should understand this now because 
now that you know the whole beginning part's going to make a lot more sense now you've literally locked people up or been responsible for locking people up in the jails to which they are asking you which one do you want to go to the one with gang members from uh the crips or the one with the gang members from ms i'm just using those as examples they're taking you to jail jails or remand set wherever it is where there would likely if not necessarily be people that you've put behind bars that they if i'm the detective handling that case the newest detective knows we either need to go and ship this guy to a county jail, you know, a couple counties away, or maybe even a different state. The the the, the threat to life is immediate because we're not just, we're talking gang members looking at life sentences, like the the threat is real. So as I'm being transported, the the it's about Palm Springs PD did the transport. We're driving, and the young kid or young man, he's not a kid. The young man pulls off into this like dark commercial complex. So I'm looking, he's, I'm in the back of the paddy wagon. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? He comes to the back and he opens the gate and he goes, Hey man, go ahead and step out. I'm going to sit you in the front. Now I know everything that's been going on. I look at, I'm like, I go on stepping out, man. So you guys could say, I tried to escape and someone's lying in wait to take me out. I go, I know I'd seen enough movies to know this. And he goes, no man. Um, he goes, the sergeant, all the guys told me they know you and what's happening is bullshit. You shouldn't be going through this. So Sarge told me that once I get far enough away to move your handcuffs to the front and go ahead and bring you in the front of the car, that you're a good guy. And he so with, with caution, I did. And he did. He double cuffed me, put it in front, moved me to the front of the vehicle and treated with me with respect all the way to the, to the jail. Now, when we get to the jail, this is where things start to really get crooked. As we're driving there, I'm thinking, well, this is the one point where California's jacked up laws are going to benefit me. I go, it doesn't matter if it's a quarter million dollar bail. Um, it's a nonviolent, um, it's a nonviolent felony charge, which means I'm going to get fed kicked. What that means is our jails are so overcrowded that when somebody comes to jail in California, if there's not a violent charge to it, you just get a court date. They, they book you, they, they photograph you, take your fingerprints, you get a court date and you go home. Yeah, unless they know that you voted for Trump and you're registered Republican. <laughs> and then, and then this happens. So I get there and I tell the Sarge, Hey, I'm getting fed kicked. Right. And he goes, we're trying to figure something out. So about 20 or 30 minutes pass, and I see the orange jumpsuit that says Riverside County inmate come out. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not getting fed kick. And so I got to get naked in front of former peers and, and go through all the shaming of this process. And then I'm thinking, well, I'm, they're probably going to put me in, you know, protective custody, you know, with the PC guys given, you know, my job. And, you know, I've, I've got a better chance of fighting those guys than I do, you know, if they put me in GP. But it, we end up taking a, a different route because I've been here to interview people before. So in my head, I'm like, where are we going? And they put me in solitary confinement. And at this point, uh, I'm in this this solitary confinement cell. And I'm broken, man. Like, you know, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm hurting. And you, and you you have, um, what was it? I had two thoughts there. Hold on a second. It was, um, oh yeah, solitary. It's either for COVID or for your own protection um, for COVID. But when they put you in solitary, you have no idea for how long this is going to be. Yeah. Well, well, I knew it wasn't COVID because the the booking process was actually quite lengthy. They actually put you in another room and have someone come in and test you for COVID. And so once you, and they tell you, you know, you tested negative, And then from there you continue on with the process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't for COVID, you know, I, I think it's because of who I was, you know, a, a conservative Republican. Someone voted for Trump. So I'm in this solitary confinement. I, I measure it. It's eight feet by 11 feet, you know, with my feet and I'm looking at it and I just get on my knees and I just tell God, you know, everything I've done for my country, you know, you know, war, law enforcement, you know, four shootings, you know, I left out something really important that, you know, about the death of my partner. 
I go, I don't know why I'm here. And I don't know how I'm going to get through it unless you find a way to bring me some peace. So just bring me peace. Now, while all this is going on, my family's already contacted my attorney. My attorney uh, already has a bail bondsman agent. My mom put up her home for collateral. And they're calling the jail and they're saying, hey, don't book him. We have the bail for him. This is where things get twisted. The jail tells my attorney and the bail bondsman agent, you can't bail him out because he has a parole hold. And so my attorney, because she's known me for years, she's represented her agency. She goes, what are you talking about? He's never been arrested in his life. What a parole hold is for those that don't know, that means you went, committed a felony, uh, went to court, got convicted of the felony, got sentenced to prison, went to prison, ser served a portion of that time in prison, got released out early on parole. And then while you're out on parole, you did something to violate that parole, hence a parole hold being put on you. So, and all this is happening unbeknownst to me. So sometime during that night or the next morning, they contact my attorneys um, and family and say, oh, it was a clerical mistake. In 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 the all the years of doing this job, I've never seen that happen. Ever. Like oh, oh, just just a mistake that deprived one of their life and liberty for however long because of a clerical mistake. Okay, it, forgive and forget. The reason they did it was because they wanted to make sure the only way I was going to get out was you're going to do that quarter million dollar bail. That's the only way you're going to get out. And so now we go in. Now the important thing that I really left out and it plays into this next part of the story from August the fourth is before they left, Detective Candius. Turns around, and he goes, hey, I'm sorry about Gibson. Uh, he used to work with us. Sorry you couldn't save him. Now, my partner Gibson, he died on March 18th of 2011. We were in pursuit. You know, it was, a, it was a scenario that happened. My partner crashes into a tree. Me and another partner are trying to get him out, and we can't. We watch our partner burn alive in front of us. That An amazing man, Jermaine Gibson, um, two-time Purple Heart recipient, also a Marine, just a phenomenal human being. And he just got married and his baby actually was little Jermaine was only about two or three months old at the time. They literally said this to me before they leave. Everybody can kind of decide for themselves why. Well, the next time I see the FBI, now by this time, my attorney has been corresponding with the DAs, the FBI. They know I'm represented. I get a knock at the door on August the 4th of 2021. And when I open the door... It's Special Agent Armenta and FBI Agent or Detective Candius. And I look at them. I'm holding my little one. I step out because they're not coming. I, you got a warrant. And they're like, no, we're, we're here to return your electronics uh, equipment. And so my older daughter comes, takes the baby. So now I'm talking to them in front of my house, in front of the front door. And I tell them, I make the statement. You guys realize the American people don't trust you anymore. And the FBI Agent Armenta replies. He goes, why do you say that? I said, yeah, Christopher. Because it's true, but okay, what's his answer? So I, so I go, you had Christopher Ray go on television and make the statement that he hadn't seen any evidence of Antifa at BLM at January 6th. I go, at a minimum, everybody with a phone or a tablet has seen, you know, John Sullivan and the ties there. And this is what Armenta tells me. He goes, well, of course he said that. He can't say something that's going to help Trump. Now, I'm standing in the front door facing Armenta. Candius is standing behind Armenta facing me. So they're both facing me. When he says that, even his partner kind of looks at him like, dude, what'd you say? And so I look at him. I said, dude, I think Biden is a complete clown. But if I'm under oath and I get questioned on something he did good, like I got to tell the truth. He realizes he said the quiet part out loud. Well, we're going to get your electronics. So they go back to the vehicle. Um, they're there for a little bit of time and they come back. They give me my electronics. I sign the receipt for it. They leave. I immediately get on the phone with somebody to have them record my statement while it's completely fresh. 
Then I call my attorney, tell my attorney what happened. He's pissed. He's like, well, did they call you? I go, no. He goes, he goes, they should have never, they, he goes, they never, they've, they've tried no communication with me. They, they're, they're, no, they're directly communicating with someone whom they know to be represented. I don't know if the rules are the same in America that it would be in, in Canada civilly, but I presume when they know that someone's represented, they don't go and meet with them privately without the presence of counsel. 100% misconduct. And so he's pissed. And I tell him, well, whatever. I go, you need to get the recording from them because this is what they said. And so by this time, I've gone on a few podcasts and shared my story. And I went on a few more. So this is August the 4th. Now, here's the other thing why August the 4th is important. That's the birthday of Jermaine Gibson. And they know historically that on my social media, I would usually put out a, a memorial thing for him because of his passing. It's my belief that they showed up because they were either trying to find me, you know, sad, depressed, emotionally distraught, maybe under the influence of like beer or something, something to support their, their red flag law case, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, mental, mental issue. If I, I think may, at the time, this is August, this is after you've been released from uh, custody. Yes. Uh, were there, uh, on, in terms of your bail, were there any prohibitions on alcohol or marijuana consumption or anything like that? No I, no, I don't believe there is. Okay. So it would not like if they had caught you drunk that you would have been in violation for consuming alcohol. I know some of the Jan Sixers weren't allowed consuming alcohol, I think, while, while on. Yeah, there's, there's nothing, like, nothing like that that I'm aware of. Okay. And so they give me my electronics, they leave. So my attorney starts asking for this continually. We finally get to de early December of 2021. And during this time, I've gone on a few shows and I've told everybody this, that part of the story. And I said, listen, once we get that audio, I don't care if a judge puts a gag order on me, I will release the audio and everybody's going to see it because essentially you have an FBI agent saying that it's okay to commit perjury under oath so long as you're not helping your opponent. I go, so, and I'll deal with the consequences of, of you know, being in, in you know, you contempt of court. You ain't getting that audio, uh, Alpha, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, the DA contacts my attorney um, the day before, the day of or the day before we go to court and says the FBI contacted us. And said, there's no audio recording of that contact. Now, there's audio contacts of every other contact they have with every other January 6th defendant that's out there. They, they, the DOJ says this is argue, they argue that this is the biggest case for the DOJ in our nation's history. And you're going to go to the home of an alleged suspect and you're not going to record that contact. I'm not buying it. Now, I, I'm just little old <laughs> Luna. You know, I'm not significant in the big scheme of things here, but this is why they destroyed that audio. Special Agent Armenta is also the special agent that was handling the assault case for um, Officer Fanone. Fanone is the guy the, allegedly had a heart attack after being tased, uh, was the one who testified tearfully. He was he did an interview with someone. Oh, the guy from MSNBC who cried. I want to thank you for your service. OK, so th that guy. Yeah. The guy, time life, the poster boy from, from all of that. Well, the reason they got rid of that audio is because it would have been a Brady issue and it would have compromised not only every case he's done, but specifically that one. Mm -hmm. So it becomes one of the dominoes to help collapse their narrative of lying, you know, of, of what's going out there. So that, it's, it's my belief that that's the reason that audio no longer exists. Now, during this time, like I said, we got a couple of pages for the warrant. And we've seen three different times they mentioned confidential informant, confidential citizen, CHS. So we do a motion to reveal the identity of the informant because one of the three theories we have is it's someone from the agency or proxy to the agency 
that was trying to undermine that, you know, mm-hmm. court case, civil suit going on. The day, the morning of that we get to court, the DA, the DA who is running for judge and has subsequently became a judge, imagine that, tells my uh, my attorney, the FBI just contacted me and said it was a typo. There is no informant. They rent, They meant to write anonymous party. Now I'll give it to you once. But you're going to tell me you made that mistake three times? And I guarantee you when we get the rest of the 100, 100 and so pages of the warrant, it's probably in there dozens of times. It's on. It, there's nothing to say. Like, it, it, and the guy, what was his name? Kleinfeld, not Kleinfeld, Klein, Klein Smith. Kleinfeld was the lawyer from Carlito's way. Klein Smith is the FBI lawyer. Said he was just. A, it, was, it was a clerical error that you know they modified evidence and then submitted it to a judge. And here, what they submitted, they'll, they'll have to backtrack it because I guess they would have to identify a confidential human source. Um, or, or it was anonymous the entire time, and then they did lie about it being a CHS so that it would lend more credibility when they go to a judge. If it's anonymous, what the hell? You just take an anonymous shit from the internet. And so it's it's you lied then, or you're lying now yep. because in California, I'm still considered an expert witness on gangs and search warrants, and I've never done. I'm, I'm like 99.9% confident I've never done a warrant with anonymous party. No, really, nobody does because judges are just they don't like it. They know it could be a neighbor, ex-employee, ex-girlfriend. Like, there's just so many motives. They're just not going to like that. Well, it could be it could be Antifa trolls on the internet. <laughs> oh, my good. Oh, my good. But the opposite side of that spectrum is a confidential informant. A judge weighs that very high mm-hmm. because he knows we've gone through the whole check the boxes. You know, people's safety, identity, ongoing crimes. Like, a judge gives a lot of credibility to that. So either you'd like then to bring credibility. Or you're lying now to protect that source because it's going to expose motive. That is damned if you do, damned if you do, damned if you don't, and one way or the other. Um, So the other motion we file at the time, and this is December of 2021. No, I'm sorry. Now now we get into early 2022. We do a motion to suppress the felony charge down to a misdemeanor charge. And during that time, um, they've offered one plea deal. I rejected it. Um, And... When we go, I'm trying to get the order of events here correct. Yeah, so we do a motion to we do the motion to reveal the identity of the informant, and then we do the motion to it's a 19B motion to bring it from felony and misdemeanor. The DA argues, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Navarro, Deputy DA Navarro, now Judge Navarro, argues to the judge, we can reduce this to a misdemeanor. This is a, a January 6th domestic terrorist. He's still tweeting. He's doing shows. He has a podcast. He's a threat to society. The judge rules in favor of them. It keeps it as uh, he does it without prejudice. Um, and about seven minutes to eight minutes later, we're now in the hallway of that court. The same DA, come, the one that just argued that I'm a danger to society. You can't reduce it to a misdemeanor because everything we've been requesting has been denied in the criminal case. But remember, there's still the civil case, the gun violence protective order that they used to take all my guns. So there's a civil case and a criminal case that are paralleling each other. So the next that that afternoon, now we got to go to civil court. And so my attorney says, hey, it doesn't matter. Everything that we're not able to get in the criminal case, we're going to get them on the stand now, and we're going to make them answer to all this shit. Eight minutes after we leave that courtroom, DA comes over, tells my attorney, you guys still got to go to the court in Indio, but just so you know, we're dismissing the case. The criminal case. The, the civil case. This, okay. Oh, I see. So they don't have to testify about it. 
So we go to court Indio and in front of a lot of the the, the DAs and the judge that I used to be in chambers with in front of everybody that knows that my names has been ran through the mug. You know, we see the the DA get up there and they dismiss the civil case against me. And that's the first, you know, we won half the battle at that point. But just so everybody knows, they started this whole process with that. And now you're dismissing it. It's not like, you know, it went to court and a jury made a decision. They're dismissing. They know I can sue them like crazy for this. But they're willing to take the chances with the lawsuit just to keep the agents from having to testify on the stand. I'm just going to read one chat that just caught my attention. Call sign Cujo says, Viva, we need to blow his channel up bigly in the most positive way. Nonviolent metaphor. <laughs> blow it. We're going to get to we're going to get to that at the end. And I'm not going to forget. So they dismiss the civil. I mean, it's just it's just the lawfare. And by the way, they'll maybe end up dismissing all the charges. The damage will be done. And if you don't screw up in the process, they won't be able to get you on, you know, some sort of procedural violation while these bullshit charges were, you know, brought and carried out. Plus, you survived the initial, um, the initial incident, which was probably more than what they already wanted. Uh, you you were in solitary for what thirty six hours, two days? Uh, yeah, about a day and a half. And you get out and you go back um, to regular life, or you go back to your family. Yeah. Uh, um... My, working, a, working a job in the, I mean, are, are you able to work a job now? So remember I was, I went from part-time to full-time and that move actually put me back on probation with the Palm Springs Unified School District and the pressure that they were receiving, you know, ended up, they ended up letting me go. So that left me with just the canine job that I had and, you know, just trying to find ways to, to make ends meet. And then ultimately in mid 2022, um, the canine job wanted me to go to another state for an extended amount of time, which a, I can't do because I'm still out on bail right now. So anytime I leave the state, I need to do it with permission and it needs to be temporary. And then two, you know, I, I can't leave, you know, babies at, at home, you know, cause the missus still has her, her full-time job. She's a CNA. So, CNA, but here, hold on. What's the, what's the CNA? A uh, certified nursing assistant. Okay. They're, they're the hardest, in my opinion, I think a lot of people agree with me. They're the hardest working people in, in the medical field they and, they do and, and most underpaid, most if, underpaid. If, if california is anything like canada yeah so during this process i start to realize they're panicking because they've dismissed the civil case which tells me they know you know they know what we're gonna ask the questions nobody else knows to ask and they start ask they start offering deals and these deals i've, I've worked law enforcement i'm like you don't offer deals like that unless you're not confident in the case Ultimately, this was about a month and a half ago when I went to my last hearing. It was a family settlement conference, and that got continued. They offer my attorney, they say, hey, what if we reduce it to a misdemeanor? Because I've told them to go pound sand every time. They said, what if we reduce it to a misdemeanor? No probation, no nothing. He just signs guilty to the misdemeanor. We'll immediately close the case. The next day, he can file for expungement, and the DA will support it. And... I told him, you can go after yourself. We're going to go to trial. Now, my attorney, he's he's frustrated, and I understand. He's like, listen, dude, there's he goes, there's nothing better they can offer you. Like, that's the best they can offer you. It's, it's, the, said, it's no, the George, it, well, okay, it's the George, it's the Georgia RICO case sort of charges that some of the defendants have agreed to, which results in no criminal record, total expungement after three years. Um, and some people say, uh, they're stupid for having pleaded. Others say uh, they would have been dumb to say no. Here's here's what I'll say. And I'll speak from the heart on this so people can understand. 
worst case scenario for me in this corrupt system, I know that I'm looking at probably a, a guilty plea because the system's just, it's corrupt. So what I told my attorney is you need to fight for my appeal. So hopefully we're in the presence of a good president at the time that's trying to rectify these things. But worst case for me is three to five years. Now, I'm not saying I want to go through that. There's no way. I got a family that I don't want to abandon. I got a little girl that's three, another one that's seven months. The seven-month-old, I mean, can you imagine if dad's gone for three or five years? Like, I don't want that. But it's easier for me. I, I was willing to give my life as a Marine. I was willing to give my life as a cop. If I got to sacrifice three to five years of my freedom to get on the record everything that they've done, then so be it. There's a lot of people that are facing much harder sentences, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. When you're faced with that, and let me tell you guys, I'll be in debt the rest of my life. The, the amount that it costs to fight this, it, listen to all the stories. People are losing their homes. They're losing. You can't get work. You know, I have an impeccable resume. When all this happened, I applied to these really great jobs, was immediately hired, offered bonuses, but then they do the background check and this FBI flag pops up and they rescind it. So they make it impossible to have any type of, you know, reasonable employment. So it's hard for people to, to continue to face that, you know, especially yes. when you're looking at people that are 40 and 50. In other words, you tell them spend the rest of your life in prison. So those of us like myself that are positioned to where that sacrifice isn't as great as theirs, we got to take this fight because here's one of two things is going to happen in my situation. Either they're going to dismiss the case to keep their agents from having to testify, or they're going to have to go on the record and they're going to have to answer. Why did you say this thing about perjury? And, you know, maybe they think that there's no audio on their end. Maybe, maybe there's other audio that's out there. They're, they're going to have to explain all the things that we're going to, because once we go to trial, they have to disclose the entire warrant. And and I'm going to pick that thing apart. Why do they not have to have already disclosed it? I mean, this, this is, I don't know. I mean, I presume this falls under not even Brady obligations, but just full disclosure. Like, the, how do you they, not have it yet? They're supposed to. The law says you're supposed to. It, it's it is um no no it's a it's atrocious full stop there's no but and the fact that anybody can find some meaning in it or some strength and solace is on them and not um not anything else um what I was, was going to ask no you you go to a, a jury trial in California um Lord knows how that goes and then some people are going to say you're risking three to five in jail. You can get it all out on the record. And if after all that, they still say guilty and you're a cop going to jail, that's going to be a very, very, very long three to five years. It will, but I can survive it. It'll, it'll be a nightmare, but I can survive it. I, my, my, my God would not have allowed me to be in this position unless he's going to see me through it. And it, it doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. But here, here's the thing. Somebody has to get them on record. Somebody does. Because if I take a plea, Everything they've done from fabricating evidence, exculpatory information, Brady information, destroying evidence, lying, the cover-ups, all of that, there's no accountability for it. Um, and on top of that, you know, I've been debanked, you know, early on in 2021, Bank of America shut down my banks. I'm a quad esser. Anytime I go to fly, you know, I'm, I'm subject to the special treatment. Say, say what the quad esser means for those who don't so, know. So quad S is on our tickets um, in the corner. There'll be these four S's. That's why they call it the quad S. And when I first experienced this, this would have been May, May or June-ish, around 2021, I went to the Ontario airport. I was going to do a canine job that I was flying out to for a weekend. And when I get there, I, because I've flown a lot, there's, they're taking forever. 
at the uh, the desk where you you know where you where you check in. And I was like, everything okay? And so finally, somebody comes over, and I'm talking like 30 minutes right there. And they finally they let me go. I, I go to oversize to check in my stuff, and now I get to where the TSA is, the fun part that we all like. And as soon as I get there, I see a little red flash on the guy's screen. He stops everybody. They clear everybody out of the, the little module area. And this team of TSA guys comes over. This guy has a clipboard with a plastic sheet on it. And he goes and he starts reading this whole thing. If you want to continue to fly, you got to do this, 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 this. This is a rant. Oh, this is a random audit is what they call it. Bullshit. And so, yeah. <laughs> random. Bullshit. Random my ass. Okay. So you get there and you take off everything. It's just you're down to just T-shirt, jeans, socks are off. They open your luggage to go through everything, your electronics. They run you through the x-ray one. They run you through the spinning one. I mean, the, the whole process took about 40 minutes. And meanwhile, I feel bad for the people that are waiting because they're all waiting. Nobody can come through that until they're done with me. So finally, when they move me off to the side, they open it. They go to business as usual. I'm still, you know, bare feet and my jeans and my t-shirt. And I have a Marine Corps tattoo on, on my forearm. So the guy sitting there that's at the machine, he looks at me and he goes, hey, devil dog, what'd you do to get on this list? And I said, well, I'm glad you're telling me it's a list because everybody else is telling me this is random. He goes, no, man, you're on the list. I go, should I expect this when I get to Dallas-Fort Worth? He goes, yeah. And I said, all right. And and sure enough, you know, when I, when I went to fly home from Dallas-Fort Worth, it was the same treatment. Mm. And then later on, it started to come out. You know, we started to realize it was happening to other people. And there was this list, you know, that they were denying, which ultimately we found is quad s which means it's the it's the highest level of alert that you can have before they revoke your ability to fly so and and here's the, here's what's dangerous not only do you go through that but the entire time that i'm now in the terminal i'm being followed i'd recognize undercovers i i did it you're being followed everywhere bathroom everywhere and then when you finally get to you know the little tunnel thing to get into the plane they pull you aside again Check your carry-on again. They swab your hands again. They run the dog on you again. Imag now I know I'm a good person. Imagine <laughs> if you're getting onto that plane with dude. Me. I, I'm I'm I'm. I once saw a guy getting on a plane. His clothes was in a was in a laundry bag, and I was uh, like one of those aerated laundry bags. I was scared. If I see this, I'm a neurotic guy. I'm I'm scared. And that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, these poor people. They're probably wondering, is this dude? Who is this dude? Is he a, a terrorist? You know, you, you start thinking all this. But here's the other part that people don't think about. You're utilizing resources now on me that could actually be searching the terminal for a real threat. Mm -hmm. And and now you've taken that away to actually look for someone that's that's dangerous. And now I'm not the only person this this is happening to. This is happening to hundreds of people as they fly that are on this list. Well, it that's happened to uh, to Brendan Strzok, another one of the Jan Sixers. And whenever Brendan, not that anyone looks like more of a threat, you you know, looks can be deceiving. <laughs> But some people look like less of threats than others, especially given the charges that they're facing. Oh, wow. Okay. Brandon's a beautiful looking guy. Come on. <laughs> what what I, I met him in person. He, he looks he looks just as cinematic in person as he does on the internet. No, <laughs> he's, he, he said the same thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's nuts, wasted resources, scares the shit out of everybody else getting on the plane. And for what? His charges weren't even, uh, you know, at least yours, in theory, serious charge, unlawful possession of a of a banned uh, assault rifle. I mean, that's that sounds scary. Um. Uh, do, oh, two things actually. Before I want to ask where everything is at now, but do you have time to come over to locals and take some exclusive questions there? Absolutely. Okay. Now I want to do three things. There were three rumble rants here. Uh, on the Rumble side, it says Crash Bandit. They are using summary judgment a lot in our in our U.S. judicial system lately. Absolutely, Crash. I mean, 
see the way they get around even giving you a fair trial. Bench Brat says, I teared up in the shower when Alpha said he joined the day after 9-11 to find out it's all a lie must hurt. I'm going to save that question for locals because that's off topic, but I wanted to ask you that. And I'm not your buddy guy says, I'm genuinely sickened how corrupt and evil many uh, within the federal government are for crying out loud, needing to investigate anyone who buys a Bible. It's like evil wears feds like a skin suit. Where are things with you now? Do you have a trial date? Uh, we go, the family settlement conference got continued to March the 7th. Um, so two and a half more months, we go to that. We're going to request, um, the discovery that we still haven't got. Cause I told my attorney, we're not going to trial, man, until they give us the stuff that we need. So I imagine we're going to get a date continued after that to get the discovery. I don't see how a judge is going to let them get away with not giving us discovery. And at some point, I think probably maybe, approaching summertime or during the summer he's going to make them give us discovery and then once they give us discovery i think we got 30 days and we go to trial so i think we'll probably be looking at trial either in the summer or in the early fall this year i think we're looking at trial um i'm gonna well uh, the one question i'm not leaving for for our locals part you have a podcast give everybody the links i'm going to put them in the pinned comment but how can people help you and it's got to be it'll be i know there's more than one click i'm going to put the one clicks in the comment section but Tell people what you're doing now, where they can help you, how they can help you, and where they can find you. Yeah, uh, if if you want to, you know, give my family a gift and, and help us with this fight, um, I have a Gifts and Go set up. It's givesandgo.com slash defendpatriotluna. Um, and then my podcast. This The only reason that my podcast even exists is because of this fight. You know, I, I got frustrated. You know, I, my attorneys gave me the green light and on August 30th of 2021. I started the Alpha Warrior show and, and it's on Rumble, you know, and you guys get to get my take and perspective on things and, you know, uh, guests that I bring on, you know, get and, to do things from a different perspective. Bringing this up in real time so you can confirm with your own voice, this is the proper, yeah. this is the appropriate. That's, that's the correct one right there. Okay. Amazing. Okay. Well, good. And, and that beautiful little girl is now three years old. Look at that. Soft little cheeks. Oh my goodness. Like soft, like velvet. That's that's the little one they left by herself in the bazinet. And I was googling Cain Velasquez before because the profile pic that we used for the thumbnail, I was like, he remind, and it clicked while we were live. Cain Velasquez, hold on, I'll, I'll bring up that. That's the thumbnail. Uh, does Alpha have a donation site? It says Arkansas Crime Attorney. We just got it. Okay, and I'll and I, I think the link is here. Link here. I'll put all the other links in there. But the gifts and goes is uh, arguably, but not arguably, the most important. Uh, are, not that anybody cares about CommyTube, but are you also on CommyTube with your channel? I, I was. I started off there, uh, but YouTube, Twitch, all them didn't waste no time to, to, to take me off and deplatform me. So it's just uh, any, Rumble. Any, any reasons given to ask the absurd question? Uh, the one on you, the final strike on YouTube, I was doing a live show with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And they, they, yeah, they, they deplatform me in the middle of the show. They didn't wait for me to finish. Un, oh, God, God forbid, Dr. Sherry, Dr. Sherry, should, you know, medical misinformation. I mean, at least they shut down a buddy of ours. It was, it was a clerical mistake. They brought it back up. But when you talk crypto, apparently that's also anything contrary to full control over the populace uh, raises immediate flags. So you've been, you've been yeeted from YouTube. Yeah. So people can, uh, you can find me on Rumble. Um, and two, two different channels on, uh, Twitter X, whatever, whatever you consider it now. Have I, as far as the important details of the story, I think we've covered all of them. Have I not asked anything that I should have asked? No. Um, you actually did a phenomenal job. 
Dude, I no, lied. And I, and I, I had a skeleton. Little... We go this tangents, but I, and I, there's tangents. I have the skeleton of your story, but I didn't want all the details because I, I like to learn things in real time. That's fuck. It's it's it's. I can't get past the initial. I can't get past the initial raid. It's it's obvious what what the what the purpose was. Okay, everybody. What we're gonna do here because there are some questions on locals, and I got I got I got the important one, and it has to relate to whether or not you regret your uh, service or whether or not you feel that you've been lied to. But save it for vivabarneslaw.locals.com. Everybody, link to locals, and I will put up this entire interview on YouTube tomorrow. Um, I'm going to put all your links in this after we, after we stop going live, make sure I didn't leave anything here. Um, okay. I think we got everything. We got everything on the rumble side. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to end it on rumble. Come on over to vivabarneslaw.locals.com. And, uh, I'm also going to try to sell you on locals, but that, that'll be there. Okay. Ending on rumble. Everyone will know where to find you and locals. Here we come now. This is, this is the personal question. Um, Alpha, I mean, you, you, there's, there's the senators that you have, Duckworth, uh, Senator Duckworth, who, who, who served, sacrificed, and apparently still supports the regime and buys into the regime. Your experience in Iraq, do you feel like, do you feel like, like you were lied to and exploited by the government? Well, absolutely. I, I, I believe, I know I was lied to. As a matter of fact, it's, to answer the question, do I regret the decision I made joining the Marine Corps? That, absolutely not. I know I did it for the right reasons. I know the brothers that I was there with did it for the right reasons, and I'm not ashamed of that. The other thing that I realized is, if you remember, I said they were trying to get me to join JAG. And I said I didn't want to. I wanted to go over there, and I wanted to slay bodies. I wanted to take names for what they did to our country. I, I went over there with this hate in my heart. Because these people, we were told, hated us. And then I met these people. And they didn't hate us. Everything that we're being told... Now, granted, there's the ones that fight us. But the regular people welcomed us. They actually were terrified when we would leave their, their little towns. They're, most of them didn't even know what the heck was going on. And I remember struggling with... Are, are we going to create future enemies? And I mean, I was just a kid. I'm, I'm 21 years old, you know, trying to, trying to make this all make sense. And, you know, but you got guys that are shooting at you. If people are shooting at you, you're going to shoot back. I mean, that part is, is, is the easy equation. But it was late on in life. You know, I know everybody talks about the red pill. I'm very new to that. You know, I, my brother's been the conspiracy theorist growing up. My little brother, he would call me working, tell me something. I'm like, dude, don't call me with that craziness. He loves calling me now saying, I told you so. He, he he exploits the hell out of that. But what kind of red-pilled me to make this all make sense was I was watching the news one day, and I'm like, who's this Jeffrey Epstein dude? Why does everybody care whether this guy killed himself or not? You know? Oh, dude, and you, so really, I, you, you really are quite new to the red pill then. <laughs> yeah. so, so I start looking it up, and I, I use my detective training, you know, all the stuff that I've been trained. And I go down that rabbit hole that turns into the thousands of thousands of rabbit holes that are there. And once you see it, you can't, there's no going back. And which leads me to the 9-11 stuff and the Building 7 stuff and all this stuff that's considered controversial. And I started to realize they exploited my patriotism and so many young Americans' patriotism. We were men willing to go and fight for our country, die, orphan, you know, my, my little girls at the time because we love our country so much and they exploited that. And so... That part hurts. It, it hurts when you figure out the one that betrayed you is the one you loved. 
But then I also started to learn that there's a difference between the government and the United States. I love the United States. I love our people. I'm not very happy with the government. And so that's kind of my long-winded answer of whether I regret it. So I don't regret the Marine Corps. Um, I, I am pissed that they took advantage of me. I want to get the Mark Twain quote. I don't want to screw it up. Love your country unconditionally. Uh, government when they deserve it. Let's see if that brings it up. Mark Twain, patriotism is supporting your country all of the time and your government when it deserves it. It's a good, it's a good line. I like that. Um, uh, okay, now I, I, wanna, I didn't want, I was going to ask this one early on, but I don't want to come off as too pretentious, but I'm going to do it anyhow. It's, it's fascinating. I don't know if you ever thought about this. What is the earliest memory that you have of life? The earliest memory I have of life it's it's a it's kind of a sad one. So, but it's well, the, the this is why one. this this is the, it, it's it's some people believe it's indicative of uh, you know the rest of life. Or so uh, my dad was a great father. So I want to I want to you know start it with that. But I think I was probably around two or three, and I remember that my mom was yelling at my dad for something. Um, and but he did drink. He was a drinking man. Um, not abusive, but he was a drinking man. And I remember he, he went outside and he's sitting on the stairs to the apartment complex going up. He's like on the second or third step and the door was open. So I remember going out there and I remember just sitting next to him and I remember he, we talked or he was talking to me. I don't remember anything he was saying, but I remember just looking up at him and I remember thinking that my dad just looked broken. Like he just looked so just broken at that time. And I remember just hugging his knee. And that's my earliest memory um, that I actually asked him about later on in life because I, I wanted to know what that conversation was about. And I was curious if he remembered. And he did. He actually, he, he remembered it just as much as I did. And he had explained that my mom had gave him a choice, uh, stop drinking or leave. And that when I went out there, he was, he was telling me that, that I was worth, because my brother wasn't born yet, that I was worth stopping drinking for and that he was telling me how he was going to change and he was going to be the dad he's supposed to be. And that, that's what that conversation was. So I learned that later on in life, but that that's my earliest, that's my earliest memory. That's not a sad memory. That's actually, that's a, that's an optimistic, beautiful memory, depending on the perspective. Um, okay. That's well, that, that's it. That's, that is indicative that that reflects perspective in life as well. Like l later on in terms of you dealing with how you deal with this, this is the other question. I'm going to get to some questions that we have in the, in our comments. Um, how do you deal? You're, you're a religious man. Uh, I am. I, so here's a long winded one. If you guys, if you guys allow me. So growing it. up, growing up, I had friends that were Jewish friends that were Mormon friends that were Christian, like friends from all the different, you know, uh, different religions that are out there. And I wouldn't get invited to church. You know, sometimes it was a girl I was dating, whatever. And my dad let me go. Now, remember, like we were a strict Catholic family, but he would let me go to these other churches. And and I even went to a Christian church because there's they're, they're so much more fun than a Catholic church for a long time. And so I, I remember asking him, uh, man, this was a lot later in life. I was actually a dad, you know, by the time we had this conversation and a cop. So I had to be in my early, early to late 20s. I go, hey, pops. We, we were Roman Catholic. Why'd you let me go to all these churches? And he goes, he goes, I didn't care what name you called God. I just wanted you to know God. And, and however you found it, I was going to be okay with that. And I, I you know, it, it, it meant a lot. So that being the fact, I grew up in a very religious family. I know the Bible. Don't ask me to quote stuff, but you can talk about stuff and I can have the conversation. 
And I've had a relationship where it's been really high. And then I've had relationships where it's been really low. You know, I've, I've made more promises to God that I've broken um, and where he's fulfilled his end of the bargain. But there's about three or four times in my life, um, this being the hardest, where I've really been brought to the to the foot of the cross and and asking for help. And if I was to combine all those times, they're not as hard as, as the fight now. But here's the one thing. In each one of those times, I just didn't know how life was going to look or how I was even going to get through it. And at the end of those hindsight, I always ended up better than where I was before that tribulation started. There's a, He's never failed from that. So I know if, if, if his record is anything to judge now, that that's going to happen this time. That when this is all over, however that looks and however painful it is to go through, that life for me is going to be better at the other end of this. And, and my faith is there. But now when it comes to religions, I asked a lot of questions growing up. There were things I saw, you know, especially in the, and all churches, I think, have things that could be questioned. But specifically for me in the Catholic church, I was like, well, why can't my aunt go get the Eucharist no more? And dad explained, well, she's divorced, you know, and she has to go, you know, before a bishop to get an annulment and all this stuff costs money. So as I got older, I was like, so you're telling me someone's got to spend money, go plead with someone just to take the body of Christ, like the most sacred of sacraments. And I just, that sounded like business to me. That didn't sound like God. And I just, I just saw these things. So one, and like I said, my mom is the strong, brilliant one. And I haven't given her so much love in this conversation, but she, she taught me never have faith in man. Cause man's going to let you down. You know, the church is just a building at the end of the day. Your faith always needs to be completely invested in God. That's it. Man will always make mistakes and man will always corrupt the church. God won't. And, and so I, I lived by that. And so I believe in my creator. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You know, this is my belief. But I do believe that man has really corrupted a lot of the churches and exploited people's faith because it, it, it's, it's so important. And I honestly don't think that there needs to be a middleman, you know, between us and God. I think fellowship is important because that's how you, we, we, we profess our faith. That's, you know, examples. But at the end of the day, the one thing that I know is an absolute is that God is real and I believe in how my, in my faith is in him. I'm going to read some more. It's, it's beautiful. Um, we got USA Now who made a meme that says we're on at the same time as Russell Brand. There's replay. Don't worry about it. Then we got a meme from USA Now who says, it's a woman screaming. It says, I know globalists and deep state did false flags and psyops against the people, but I'm enlightened, so I will focus on my own life to survive. And then there's a cat calling her a P-U-S-S-Y. Denise Ann 2 says, Alpha, I'm so glad you're getting your story out. I love watching your content. And sit rep with CanCon. We got Bill Brown who says, Ura. Bill Brown was, I believe also United States Marine Corps. Bill, tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, I'm fairly certain I, I know you served. I'm, it's, I know you're a USMC. Uh, Susie C says, thank you both. Great show today, but it keeps lagging out on my end. We'll rewatch later, says, my name is Trinity. Victor Cardone says, Viva, great interview. Whatever happened to our country when regular Americans are now the enemy? Totally disgraceful. Uh, Pam Walker, he needs to contact Mr. Barnes at the Free America Law Center. I'll send you that link afterwards. Well, I'll send you that. It's, um, it's, uh, the stories, I mean, I knew, the I, knew, I knew the broad outline, but not the details. Bill Brown says, Chris Ray is still refusing the court order to hand over Seth Rich's laptop. Judge ordered them to turn it over two months ago. Mighty Pay, amazing interview, devastating and infuriating story. Godspeed, Alpha. 
Ryan PD 911, does Alpha have any hope for the future, considering the fact that the head of the British intelligence said today that the potential election of Trump is an existential threat to Britain? They just won't give up. What's your op? I mean, I, the, the last answer is going to give a bit of the answer to this. What's your overall optimism for the future? I, I absolutely believe America is going to stand at the end of this. America is going to be what it needs to be at the end of this. I think things are going to get a lot worse. Um, what what I've learned over the last, I mean, we could say six, seven years, especially when it comes to patriotism, you know, I always thought that our patriotism was bar none to, to anywhere in the world. But then I saw January 6th happen. It, it, forget about my story, just January 6th. And I saw the effect that it had on the populace. People were afraid to protest. Like it's your constitutional right to redress your government peacefully. And people were afraid to do that. And what I saw was that we as Americans got so comfortable with the conveniences of life that we were going to sacrifice liberties and, and freedoms and that we were going to do it because there's the hopes that other people are going to fight that battle for us. And what we're realizing, and, and there's this quote, I don't know if you can find it. You know, hopefully I don't butcher it, but hard times breed strong men, strong men breed easy times, easy times breed weak men. And unfortunately we're in that cycle where as a nation we got really lazy. Well, you got you forgot, a, you forgot the last one. It's the weak men create hard times. That's and the, weak that's men the punch. create hard times. And, and, and we're there, come. and they show a picture of Biden, and they show a picture of Trudeau, and we're looking at weak men who are in the midst of creating very hard times. There's another one, similar, but it relates more to the you know the the willing relinquishing of freedoms. In Japan, this, the, every culture has a different one. Uh, Japan, it's rice patties to rice patties in three generation. The Scottish say the father buys, the son builds, the grandchild sells, and his son begs. And in China, it's wealth never survives three generations. But substitute the word wealth for freedom. It's the people who had to earn it that appreciate it. It's the people who were born into it that think it's always been that way. And then it's the next generation that doesn't appreciate it and will you know, give it away for a, a nice can of uh, Mountain Dew. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I actually thought that when they came after the kids, you know, with the injections or with CRT and all this, you know, gender reassignment stuff, I actually thought that was going to be the straw that broke the camel's back. And unfortunately it wasn't. And then that brought me to the conclusion that I think the only thing that's really going to piss America off to the point where we reach that precipice is when they come after the money and, and people actually can't buy food. And, 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 and I, I think we're, I think that's where we we're going to be awake and, and take back what we, what we need and reinstitute, government and laws the way it needs so because there's a lot that i've learned in this you know as a cop in the police academy you cover the constitution but you don't cover it to the level or in deafness that people probably think you know you focus on fourth amendment things like that and what i now what i know hindsight is there's actually a lot of laws that we enforce that are unconstitutional and our penal code book is it's fatter than a bible i mean that thing needs to get stripped down yeah. if you look at one thing i've learned from being on this side of the coin is our, our plea bargain system is punishment. It, it, it's, it's, we reach pleas through, through threats. So that means we're, we're getting people to say guilty to things. And obviously there's criminals out there that do things, but we're getting innocent people to plead guilty to things because of the fear or the inability to, to have a fair fight that that needs to be revamped. So I support law enforcement still. I support the thin blue line. I support the badge. I don't believe it needs to be defunded, but I believe it needs to be completely overhauled. I think our young men and women need to be taught law enforcement the correct way. 
I think it needs to be taught in a way that bridges the relationship between the community and law enforcement. So there's trust again. And the only way you have that trust is through transparency. And, and most of the young guys in a black and white police car, they support that. It's when you start getting into the leadership that that starts to deteriorate. And by the time people go through their process in their career, they just fall into the funnel of that. But if we teach these guys in their first five years of law enforcement, the correct way to do it, I mean, we can really shift the, the look of law enforcement in our, our country and probably the rest of the world. It's Marcus Tullius Cicero says, more law, less justice, which is another one that I, that I very much love. Uh, Don's wife, I pray that the TSA agent who told him that he is on a list doesn't get into trouble. <laughs> then we got Pasha Moyer with a meme. It says, rare photo of me waiting for justice from the FBI, and it's a skeleton sitting in a chair. And let me just make sure that I've gotten to all of the specific questions and the tipped questions uh, I have. Now, let me see in the, in the general chat. Anybody get any questions in here? Um, let me see what we got here. Does he think the WEF and globalists are behind all of the evil happening in our country, says Don's wife? I think they're definitely at the top of the pyramid. But I have this saying, if we know their names, they're not the ones in charge. It's not bad. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, the WF, they become not, not a scapegoat, but the, the ultimate boogeyman. At this point, it's like, you know, the WF's not responsible for prison abuse in America. It's just no. the separate industrial complex. And, and, you know, the government here, greedy for power. And as much as the WEF is greedy for global control, unelected, whatever, governments are greedy. And it's, it's the proverbial blob that keeps on growing. Um, let me see if I haven't forgotten. I think we've gotten every. Hold on, hold on. Let me see one more question that I might have had. Oh, it is a, it's a personal one. Uh, these things have an impact on marriages. I think it's almost by design. They know that this has a negative impact on family. So even they can get you, they've gotten some of the Jan Sixers to take their own lives. And I'm not, and, and I think that's also just, you know, there's some, there is some MF or sitting back there saying, we'll get them one way or the other. Uh, this can have a massive uh, corrosive effect on a marriage, a family. Has, how, how are you as a family unit uh, faring with all of this? I'll tell you, you know, one of the silver linings to this this nightmare. So one, she's she's way hotter than I deserve. Like, she's gorgeous, just so everybody knows. Um, but when I met her, I was at the height of my life. You know, promotions, you know, I, I, the news agencies know me because of, you know, operations and things like I was, it was great. You know, it's, it's easy to love somebody when you have everything, big houses, money, boats, toys. Like I had a lot in life. So when all this started to unfold, then you're hit with the question, is this person going to stick around? And, and she did through the law enforcement thing, but that even though it was nightmare, still pretty obvious that I was going to win when this FBI thing happened. Then I really saw, man, She's not leaving. She's in the fight. Now, are there arguments because of it? Of course. You know, financial times, you know, financial struggles, you know, who else are you going to take it on than each other? You're under the same roof. And one of the things that I think probably breaks her the most is when I reject the pleas. She, she knows the easiest thing for our family is to take the plea down. And that's all she wants. She just wants me. She just wants to stop worrying about me. And when I reject that, she knows that that nightmare of me going away is still there. You know, so sometimes, you know, it's just tears. Sometimes it's arguments. 
but at the end of the day, you know, she, she's still there. She's still in my corner. And, and she knows because we've had the talk because people have asked me. But here's the thing. If God grants me and, and I get to live to be in my 70s or 80s, like everybody else, I'm going to take my last breath and I'm going to be, you know, what am I going to be thinking about? And it's, did I leave, did I live the best life that I could have lived? Did I leave those that I'm responsible, something that they're going to be okay? And, you know, did I ever compromise my character? Like for me, that's important. And so I may, I, the possibility is I may lose, I may lose appeals. You know, they may get everything to go their way, but I'll know I never took the knee. I'll know that the shootings I was in, my partner dying, the stuff from war, none of that's in vain because I, I, I stood for what I said I believed in. And I leave my kids the, a role model that no matter how hard, my dad took on the government. Like there's nothing that they won't ever be able to take on and know that you'll be okay no matter what, what, whatever the result or consequence looks like, you can be okay. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. Right, we've got two, two more questions, or three actually now. It says, okay, freedom isn't free. It says, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Those who remain. By author G. Michael Hopf. Bill Brown, USMC says, what's your favorite uh, color crayon? And then we've got <laughs> Pam Walker, who says, I don't blame her. Please tell her uh, she and you are my heroes. And then in the uh, broader chat, uh, people are saying they love you. Okay. Uh, Favorite color is green. Green? That's a good. That's a good color. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, uh, Alpha. I'm gonna. All the links are gonna be in there afterwards. We're gonna say our proper guys, proper goodbyes after this. Locals. Uh, my son also wants to say something new, but he wants to say it off air. So we'll, 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 when he comes in in a second, um, everyone will know where to find you. Thank you very much for doing this, um, and Godspeed. But we'll, we'll we'll keep in touch. We'll stay in touch, and we're gonna talk after this. Locals. Uh, see you tomorrow, and Alpha. Thank you very much. God bless her.